Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month on motorcycle travel. On this episode of Raw, episode 87, tires, boots, and helmets. All that and more coming up. Before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to some people who have helped Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw considerably this past month with support of $50 or more. Here we go. Lloyd Cappell, Miles Drew, Robert Jensen, Christopher Stone, John Shell, Vance Graham, Eric Wiedemann, Gravel Junkies of Scandinavia, Rush Hour MC, and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. It's so great to have people appreciate what we're doing here and help our shows out by supporting. We need your support too. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out like you just heard me do. Anything $10 or more gets you stickers. We would love to have you consider our monthly support option, which is patron. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Now, just in case Raw is a new discovery for you, we do another show. It's really our flagship show called Adventure Rider Radio. So drop by the website and have a look and see what's happening, adventureriderradio.com. This episode is brought to you by Fresh Tracks. Fresh Tracks provides team building programs for companies and groups and Cass and Moses, a law firm representing injured bikers for over 30 years. Now, here we go Adventure Rider Radio Raw for April 2023. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio deep in the boreal forest of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable, hoarded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by everyone who should be here, the regular, esteemed overland co-hosts and i don't say that lightly i'm going to bring in to begin with shirley hardy ricks and brian ricks in australia good morning to the both of you good morning good morning it's raining oh. we don't get much rain where we live so it's quite exciting to be <laughs> it's raining today yeah well it wasn't raining yesterday i got the r90s out that beautiful thing uh went out for a ride yesterday beautiful blue sky couple of mates Found a nice little pub to sit down and have a feed and a quiet one and then um, ride at home. Wow. And, oh, boy, is that a great little ride from the 1970s. And the other bikes are sulking because they don't get to go out very much now. <laughs> so the R90 is the one we talked about last month. Yeah, yeah. I just finished it off after eight years and uh, not quite right, but, uh, yeah, it's still a beautiful ride. But the day before, I took out the 750 Honda, which is uh, – it felt like um, a big monster uh, and uh, a bit clunky compared to the R90S ride. It, it's interesting just comparing the two. Mm. But yeah, today's today's wet, miserable, and cold, so it's inside. And um, yeah, maybe in the shed for a little bit of, oh, of course. the next project. <laughs> Frankly, Brian, I'm shocked that you're not out riding on a wet dam. Surprised you just let rain, a little bit of rain, stop you. But I'm going to leave it there. And I, I'm going to bring in Michelle Lamfair in the Black Hills of South Dakota, back at home once again. Hello, Michelle. Hey there. Yes, I'm back home in the snow and cold and non-riding season of South Dakota. <laughs> Seriously, snow still? <laughs> this is April. Oh, gosh. Not, no, in fact, last week, so a week ago today, we had a blizzard here and we got a half meter of snow, which is oh, roughly 19, 19 and a half inches. Yeah. Oh. Wow. So no wonder you've got to go to South America. You need to escape. <laughs> exactly. So let's go to the mountains of Pakistan instead. Yeah, but how long have you been home, Michelle? I, yeah, any any of the above. Uh, well, yeah, I can't really complain. I've only been home for like four days. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not bad. <laughs> but it's, it's no wonder you're not at home. 
Yeah, yeah, I have friends say that. Why do you live there? Well, because you have to come visit in summer and then you can really appreciate it. And I like winter too. I like all four seasons, but this winter was kind of exceptionally cold and long. So I'm ready for it to be over and get the bikes out of the shed. Right. Yeah. Let's bring in Grant Johnson in British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Grant. Hello, hello. And I seem to have a little bit of everything. Last night we had snow in the mountains. This morning it was pouring rain and bucketing down and nasty. And I can see the mountains from here and there's fresh snow up there again. And right now it's a beautiful sunny day. So I'm just itching to get out and ride. And you've got your bikes back together again, though. Uh, well, <laughs> that doesn't sound one, very one good. Of them is. <laughs> one of them is. Doesn't sound very good. Let's bring in Sam Manicom. He is in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hi, everybody. It's great to be back with you all again. This is going to be fun. Very good to have you back, Sam. And it's good that you work through all your technical difficulties. That The technical difficulties that you have when we do this, that doesn't extend to your motorcycle, does it? <laughs> Say nothing. <laughs> no, actually, um, Libby's doing remarkably well. She's, um, yeah, she's, yeah, she's just brilliant fun. So, um, touching wood as I'm saying this, no, no strife there. But um, yeah, this, um, I suppose, partly the technical glitches have been because we've been living in a state of chaos for the last six weeks. Um, I don't know if I mentioned, but we had um, a roof leak. So, um, and when this um, house was converted into apartments. Um, they used a lot of asbestos. So when you start to get a, a leaky ceiling, of course, you've got to have the men in um, spacesuits come in and remove it all, and then everything's got to be repaired and placed. So um, the last few weeks have been quite entertaining, but um, yesterday was the first day that we had everything back in and the new carpets and all of this sort of stuff. And we're walking around thinking, wow. After six weeks of living in one room, this is really big apartment. I mean, it's not, but it feels like <laughs> it. You appreciate it all over again. I, I like that feeling. You know, it's kind of like a muffler. It rots out in your vehicle and you drive around for a while with it. And then you get the new muffler installed and it's just, ah, oh, it feels like a new car. Or if you vacuum your car, I don't know if you guys are into that, <laughs> but if you vacuum your car, it feels like it drives and starts and runs better. It's great. Uh, absolutely. For me, the sensation is um, when I've just had my, my rear shock serviced and it's back on the bike and everything's firing on all cylinders, mm. if you can say that about a rear shock. But you know what the difference is. It just feels fabulous, doesn't it? Mm, I, I can I imagine your apartment looks great. I think I saw it um, the other day. I was on the internet looking for It's called Windsor Castle, isn't it? <laughs> uh, come on, it's just Buck Palace, of course. Um, <laughs> You know, this thing about winter is we've just went through what they say is the darkest winter in the past uh, 75 to 90 years, depending on who you're listening to. So 75 to 90 years, the, the sort of the worst winter. It's been really bad weather. We just had an ice storm. It finished off with an ice storm. And I started thinking, I'm thinking, you know, I think I have to embrace winter more. I, I've always loved winter. I, I enjoy winter. But I think I have to embrace it more. When I say that, I'm thinking motorcycle-wise. You know, there's people out there that put tracks on their motorcycles and they ride around in the powdered snow. And I'm thinking, you know... Maybe that's something I've got to get into. And Michelle, you might want to consider this too. <laughs> well, I, if you remember, I think I've shared the story before. I started riding snowmobiles before motorcycles. So mm. yeah, yeah. But there are people out there that convert bikes to that. In fact, there's a uh, broken tooth up in Canada that's out and about or just finished a ride someplace on a converted bike. And he has done some crazy, really, really cool things with bikes that have spiked tires and skis on the front and whatever else. So yeah, there's adventures to be had even in winter. 
He's a unique person. Is not many people you see ride a motorcycle in the wintertime wearing a skirt. A kilt, <laughs> a kilt rather. A kilt. a kilt, sorry. Careful, careful. Okay. <laughs> Jim, get this. Um, it's the, the latest um, project bike is an F800. Oh, that he has. Yeah. yeah. The one yeah. that he's put um, tracks on and all of the rest of it. He's got to be one tough guy. I mean, oh, the, the temperatures he's riding in, it's, it's, uh, it's just incredible. Because he's going far up north. He's going up the ice roads. Yeah. Way up there. And when you see photographs of the guy, he's got about, I don't know, three inches of ice hanging off his moustache and all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't know how he does it. What's his website? Now that we've talked about him here, we should let people know who we're talking about. Does anyone know the website? Oliver, Oliver Solaro, isn't, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, it is. He goes and by goes, Broken Tooth. Right. And it's actually sometimes spelled Woken, B-W-O-K-E-N. Tooth. T-O-O-F. Yeah. He's got a YouTube channel. He's got some insane videos. I'll, I'll try and find a link and get it to you, Jim, for okay. show notes. That'd be good. And we had him on the show a number of years ago when he was, I think it, it was sort of before his real cold weather thing, he was floating his motorcycle from place to place. Yep. So it's, uh, uh, yeah. quite, a, quite an interesting story there. Michelle, you had um, one of his films on the film festival, didn't you? We did. We've actually, we had had two different films of his. He was kind enough to submit and share because he's done some incredible adventures and he's just fascinating, the things that he does. I think one of the original missions that he was doing going up an ice road or or someplace up north was related to taking dog food. He was actually Mm -hmm. taking dog food up to a remote isolated area where they couldn't get it in. So he was, he was doing good deeds as well through Mm -hmm. all of that. Yeah, a really cool guy. Yeah, very interesting. Today, we're going to start off by talking about something that will be interesting to most everyone, I think, tires. It's almost a scary proposition to discuss tires, isn't it? Because we all know, you know, what happens in these these topics that sends us in circles and people end up arguing vehemently, which I hope we do, uh, <laughs> about their brands and models. And, and now it's not so much brands and models that we're interested in with this conversation, maybe is more tread styles, the pros and cons of those etc. Aggressive tires certainly work great for adventure riding. We've talked about the difference between adventure riding and adventure travel. Adventure riding being more of when you're going out and sort of pushing the extremes of riding and your motorcycle. Adventure travel, when you're kind of doing the opposite, trying to get the most out of your bike. And you can sort of see by that by that explanation there, the the two extremes that we're talking about. Like if you're pushing the your bike and you want to get the most out of it, you want the most traction. If you're going long distance, you want to get the the most mileage out of it. So longevity or, or the need for traction. So I'm, I'm curious uh, to begin with this. How do you guys decide what tires you're going to run on any given trip? So when you're, when you're preparing to go, what, what, what makes you choose one over the other? Michelle, let's start with you. Oh, well, for me, I think that handling is probably the most important thing for me. So I want a tire that's going to give me the best handling on the kinds of surfaces that I plan to ride on. So if I'm going to be doing a certain percentage of pavement and highway speeds, pavement two-lane roads is a different scenario than highway speeds. Um, And what percentage of riding I'm going to be doing off-road and what that off-road looks like. Am I going to be in a rainy climate so that water is a consideration? for me, that I think that's probably the biggest factor is what I'm going to be riding on when I choose a tire. Well, give an example of that sort of thought process because I'm curious how you figure out, you know, how much tarmac you're on as opposed to dirt. G- give an example there and then, and then talk about the tire that you chose for it. Um, sure. Yeah. So when I was traveling long distance through North and South America, I tried 
the different tires. And uh, I mean, obviously tires are rated or they have a suggested capability for the percentage of on-road versus off-road. And when I was riding across the US, knew that I was going to be doing more on-road. Um, I can give you models and tires and all of that if, if you want that. But I was looking for specifically something that was rated 70%-ish for on-road and maybe 30% off-road um, for crossing the US. But when I crossed down into Mexico and knew that I was going to be doing some gravel, some sand... Um, I wanted something that was a more off-road capable tire. So I switched to something that was rated more like a 60-40. And the highest uh, ratio of off-road that I've had in a model of tire is a 30 on-road, 70% off-road tire. So I've tried a few different scenarios in there. And I feel like the handling uh, off-road tires are obviously just much more capable in sand and rock um, and that, that handling for me just gives me a better level of confidence when I'm riding. So it's important to me that I kind of choose something that is going to be more compatible and it's not going to be 100%. I mean, obviously, if I'm you know, choosing a tire that's higher rated for on-road, I need to be prepared that I'm going to be taking that off-road if I choose a route that takes me off-road and, and so be it. Uh, but to try and find the right balance somewhere based on the majority of those roads is helpful for me. And I don't plan that much in advance. So I'm not plotting routes. I'm not actually saying, okay, this is the road I'm taking. This is the highway I'm taking. Um, but like recently when I went down to Carretera Austral, I did know that that road was going to be, you know, a few hundred miles of gravel and I was going to do some more technical sections on Paso Rabios. So I wondered what we would have for tires. And I didn't actually choose those. They were a rental, but they happened to be a, a set of tires that I'd used on my KLR before um, that I was happy with. So it makes a difference for handling and, and again, therefore my confidence. What tires did you choose? Like what, which tires did you find worked well <laughs> in, in some situations? Um, so in, in, I would say the majority of my travels in South America that or North and South America on my big trip, I rode a Pirelli MT60. And I've ridden, I've used a Heidenau K60. I've used a Shinko 705. Um, and again, those are all different ratings of on-road versus off-road. The Pirelli for me is at least, and I kind of learned this the hard way. I had a set of Heidenaus that I really liked, but I couldn't find when I was traveling. As As we know, I think majority of people find rear tires wear out faster than front tires. So I went to replace the rear Heidenau tire and couldn't find one. So I was going to have a mixed set, a front tire that was a Heidenau and I needed to replace something else for the back tire. But eventually I moved into Pirelli's because they were easier to find. They're produced in Brazil. So I could find them all over South America. Inventory was really good until the year that the Dakar was going on. And then all tires were gone (laughs) from everywhere. Um, but the Pirelli tire itself just really, it felt like a softer compound of rubber. It gripped the road better if I was on paved roads. Uh, felt really like I had good handling and control even when roads were wet, sometimes in tropical rains. Um, and it was a comfortable tire to ride in off-road situations as well. But that Pirelli tire wore out faster. So it didn't give me the life and you know the mileage that I would normally want out of a tire. The hide now gave me great mileage. Shinkos can give you great mileage when you're doing, um, you know, high mileage on highways. But the Pirellis for me were a very comfortable tire. And that happened to be what was on the bike, the rental bike that I had in South America just last month. 
as, as most of us know, the or I think everybody knows, um, the tread pattern has everything to do with the longevity of the tire. The knobbier mm-hmm. the tire, the faster it's going to wear out. It's probably a given to, to anyone that they understand that. But what tire did you find you got the most mileage out of? Um, oh gosh. I mean, and that that depends on what I'm riding, what kind of roads I'm on, you know, how loaded down I am. Um, I don't know. The Heidenau's really got good mileage and I've had good luck with Shinko's too. I'm, I'm kind of cheap, but (laughs) I I think I just want something that's going to give me good mileage, but perform well. And and I've had good luck with both of those. And it's a tough uh, balance, isn't it? Between that traction that you want and longevity that you want. Right. Sam, how about you? I'm just sitting here nodding. I've got neck ache, Michelle, from um, nodding in agreement <laughs> with with all of the things that you've been saying. Even the Pirellis. Um, when Birgit and I were coming up through South America, uh, I got a little bit thin on on the back tire, and we'd heard about the the Zona Franca de Iquique, which is um, a free zone, a tax free zone in Peru, and um, it's uh, in Chile. Uh, sorry, Chile. Pardon yep. me. Um, and the scuttlebutt was that um, you could pick up um, cheap tires there. So um, we we rode probably the thinnest that I've ever ridden a tire, but we got there and um, had, sure we're going to find something. And I could only find a Pirelli. It's one of the things that I'd learned by this time was that um, 17-inch rear wheels are very diff- uh, rear tires are very difficult to get hold of in a lot of countries. And I think that's something for for people. Um, to, to you know, to not in uh, take a note of in the back of their minds, um, but um, yeah, this this Pirelli, um, it was great. I needed a tire, and it worked very well. But um, where I'd been getting um, eleven thousand miles out of um, some of the rear tires, particularly the Avon Gripsters that I was using, I only got four thousand out of this one. Um, but I totally agreed with you about um, the grip on the roads. It was. Um, to, it, it was um, a really sucky tire in that it sort of seemed to suck the tarmac, which uh, yeah, which is great hooding around the corners on asphalt and so on. I, I just think that um, tires are one of the most important bits of kit that you're going to buy because they make the difference between fun and battle, um, and they can be literally um, lifesavers. But you know, when you're out there, um, you don't have a huge amount of choice. And I, people turn their noses up at folks who carry tires on a big trip, even those on a you know transcontinental trip. Um, and there are times when I'm I'm a real advocate of doing so, in spite of the fact that it's a complete pain in the backside, strapping on and strapping off, and carrying upstairs and hotels and all this sort of stuff. But I think that if you're on a tight budget, um, as in preferring to keep your cash for gas, then you ride on whatever tires you've got until they wear out, and then you spit you fit the spares that you're carrying. I think if you have a lot of road miles to do before you're going to um, get onto gravel, mud and sand, then use road tyres, as Michelle just said, and then swap them out just before you hit the, the harder sections. I think if you have a fat wallet and you don't mind the potential hassle of collecting tyres from a courier at just the right spot, then no worries that how nice. I think one of the things to bear in mind there is that... Um, Get the um, get the tires delivered to by a courier company who has a head office in whatever country you're thinking of, and arrange to collect them from that head office as you're passing through, because it's an awful lot easier and things get lost less if you do that. Um, one thing here is um, try not to use the postal system because you'll end up paying importation tax on tires when they come in, and sometimes post office don't have the tires. 
they'll give you a notification that they're in the country, but then you have to hunt out where they are. And inevitably, that can be somewhere um, where customs are involved. And then you've got all of the hoo-ha and the extra miles to do that. But, I mean, you may be so laid back that you really have to just take whatever tyres you can find along the way. And you maybe get lucky and just get what you want. Um, I know some people who um, order ahead. Um, they'll sort of hunt out um, dealerships for their bikes um, in the different countries that they're riding through. And they'll get in touch with the company and say, right, can you order me um, these tyres and um, have them waiting for me when I get there? And I think that's, um, yeah, that's quite a good idea. Um, um, yeah, I, I tend to ride with 50-50, just generally because it's a tyre that copes with just about anything that I ask it to do. Um, and yeah, of course, in thick mud and really soft sand, um, you pay the price for them. And the only time I said that Libby um, wasn't the best motorcycle was in those conditions and when I was on tyres that weren't knobblies, because yeah, they made her heavy and cumbersome. Whereas if I'd had knobblies on, um, she probably would have danced a little bit more than she did. <laughs> did you did you find a tire that worked the or got you the most mileage? Avon Gripsis. Um, I was getting around eleven thousand miles from the rear and around twenty one thousand from the front. Um, Hyde and Ale Scouts um, were also very good. So I was sitting here with a grin again, Michelle, at your comment. Um, but there are some really good. Um, tires around sort of 50-50. Um, I mean, there's always big debate, isn't it, a bit about really, is it a 50-50 tire? Well, I was, yeah. um, was uh, going to mention that. By the way, 11,000 miles is like 17, 18,000 kilometers, some, something like that. But that's what I was, I was going to get to that, actually, because Michelle had mentioned it as well, that when you look at a tire and you say it's a 50-50 or it's 70-30 or, or whatever it is, you, you know where that comes from. It, it, it doesn't come from, the, from a testing procedure. They don't, they don't run the tires into some machine and, and run it through and go, geez, I was really hoping that was going to be a 70-30, but it's not. It's a 60-40. It's marketing. Mm-hmm. Mm. That doesn't surprise me. Um, when, you, when you look at some um, photographs of all of the different tread patterns that are 50-50, and then you think, how can that possibly be a 50-50? Yeah. There's really not a lot of grip on that. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, Tires to me, they're really important. And it's one of the reasons that we carry tires um, because we'll pick them up. I mean, you're, sorry, Sam, you're saying the reason you carry them is because you want those tires in particular, like whichever yeah. tires you're choosing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd rather have the weight and the hassle so that I can ride on a tire that I know is going to give me um, really good grip in, in the bulk of the conditions and last me well. Um, Question, Sam, would you put on a fresh set of tires and buy a spare set as well and carry them for the entire life of the first set of tires? No. Good. <laughs> okay, I was worried there for a minute. <laughs> Why? No, when, you're, when you're talking about 11,000 miles out of a rear and 21,000 miles out of a front, <laughs> that's an awful lot of hotel stairs to carry them up and down. Yep, exactly. I've carried tires once. I carried, actually, I carried one tire and I'll never do it again. And I only carry it for a week and it just, no, just wasn't worth it. One of the things that make me feel comfortable with doing it is I had eight punctures in eight years in riding in all sorts of conditions. And I know that that was because I never let the tires go down really thin. 
um, yeah, okay, I'm maxing the amount of wear out of them, but uh, I've still got um, tread on those. And I'm sure that that was one of the reasons why I didn't um, get punctures. You're saying yeah. that you, you're getting less punctures because you're not wearing your tires down as far? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Much more resistant to punctures. There's a lot farther to go. Yeah. Although a three-inch nail is going to go right through. I've yeah. had a tire go through the tread and out the sidewall. I think if you look at most things that you pull out of a tire, it would be plenty to go through a full tire or a worn tire. But but uh, although I, I agree with what you guys are saying, I think it has more to do with the contact area and the and the ability of the tire to pick up whatever it is, the front tire in particular, I guess, to pick it up for the back, but whichever. I don't know if that makes any sense, Brian. <laughs> well, I, I like a tire that I can get down and scratch my toes on the tarmac with. I don't care what it is, as long as it grips and um, goes well. On, on our first trip, I, Oh, hang I, on, I hang away. on, hang on. So because I had to oh. think about that, I just think that needs some clarification. So what you're saying is you want to ride like a hooligan on your tires. That's what, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you've got really, oh. really good tranquilizers for Shirley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. Now, look, I want something that grips well. And um, uh, if it wears out, it wears out. Um but uh, on our first trip, I, um, I've had really good runs out of uh, Anikis, Michelin Anikis or TKC70s, um, the Continental tyres. But the Anikis seem to suit um, my riding. Um, and it, all right, they're not, they're probably 70, 30 or not even that um, if you wanted to go on uh, dirt roads. But big, heavy um, BMW uh, adventure bikes. Uh, aren't really designed to go smashing through sand and stuff like that. I've got Shinko um, uh, aggressive knobbies on uh, the trail bike on the 600 Yamaha, uh, which are great in the dirt, but by gee, they're, they're very different and a handful on the road. They they really trick. And I agree with everything that um, Michelle said about hiding our tyres. I put Heidi's on uh, TKC uh, Scouts, 70 Scouts, uh, and I got... 36,000 kilometres out of a front tyre and about 24,000, I think, out of a back tyre. They were great. Not Uh, so good in the wet. No. no. And, um, Grant, I've seen you do your tyre demonstration of changing a tyre. Getting a hide in our tyre off a rim uh, (laughs) is almost impossible by hand. They are so hard compound. Uh, and um, uh, particularly uh, tubeless tyres like we wear on um, the, G- the GSs. Um, they're, they're a great tyre for longevity. Um, going across Russia, I, put, I, I actually, and, I, and when you talk, of, when Sam talked about contacting um, a, a dealer, I contacted the Heidenau dealer in Finland, wasn't that sure? Mm, yeah, we went um, there. And um, to make sure they had uh, scouts because I, I wanted something to get me right across the stands, Mongolia and Russia, to the other end. And I knew that the, t- uh, the, the Heidi's um, were very long long wearing. That was fine until we um, got a real big slash in the back tyre coming to Novosibirsk, I think it was, in uh, Siberia. And um, I was really – it didn't go flat, but when you've got a, a, a big gash in your tyre between the treads and you've got – 5,000 kilometres to run, uh, I I didn't want to take a chance. So I ended up getting some Russian tyre, um, which was an interesting process in itself. 
and you can buy you can buy tires anywhere. And I got this tire that would fit um, the rim, but the tread was that thick that I had a uh, hugger um, protecting the um, shock absorber on the the GS. It ate out the hugger, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it had plenty of uh, tread on it, and it did what we wanted to do. And uh, another little story about that: I, when we were on our first trip, we we're going across through Turkey, and I I planned it. We'd used the Anarchies, uh scratching our toes around through the Stelvio Pass and all that sort of stuff through Europe. We got to um, Turkey. I wanted to get a tyre in Turkey because I knew I could not get a tyre for a GS between Turkey and Bangkok. And I, I really wanted fresh tyres, no matter how good they were, to get me through that section. And that was fine. I, I got a set, I can't remember, somewhere down on the south coast of Turkey, put them on, and here we were trundling into uh, Delhi, and we got two or three flat tyres in one day because the back tyre had a white strip showing the canvas in the middle. It was that thick. You have a look at the map, Turkey to India. That's, I mean, that's not bad. That's, that's not bad. Really. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Especially it's right. with a big bike and two up and two people's luggage. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's all weight. And that's why I won't carry a tyre because it's all weight. But, um, uh, yeah, we, and all I could find, I, I had to talk around Carol Bar, which is the, um, the, the suburb where you buy a motorbike bits and pieces in Delhi. Um, I had to talk to several people to find someone who had a tyre that would fit the rim of the of the GS. And in fact, I found one and it, it was for a 650 uh, BMW, not an 1150 that we were on at the time. And it was as thin as, as hell, you know, like skinny, but it was black and around and held air and it got us through to Bangkok, up through India and um, into Nepal. And as soon as I got to, to um, somewhere where I could get uh, better tyres, I took it off and threw it away. But um, and I, I, people that travel around Australia, I advise, and I had a guy just the other day, he said, oh, I get so much wear out of my tyres, I'm going to go around Australia, you know, 18,000 kilometres, no problem, you know. And I said, well, you do realise up in the Northern Territory, the road is so coarse and your speeds, uh, like your, your cruising speed can be 80 mile an hour up there and that's legal. Um, you get a wig your tire out. No, 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 I'll be right. I said, look, I've done it twice. And, I, and uh, what you do is you ring up um, the motorcycle shops in Darwin and you order a tire in because they don't hold a lot of stock. You tell them what, you, what tire you're wearing, they will get it in in the next shipment. It doesn't cost you any extra. They will just have it there. It'll be exactly the same price as you'd pay anywhere else. And um, uh, I think I've told you the story about a mate on a K1600 um, a Beamer who didn't change the tyres in um, Darwin, as I suggested, and delaminated the front tyre in the middle of nowhere, going down the West Coast, had to stay on the side of the road, covered in flies, and you know, mm-hmm. really uh, put a dampener on his trip. But, you know, it, you've got to understand where you are and, and what you're doing. And, and um I agree with everything that Michelle said about Pirelli's too. They're really good sticky tyre, um, uh, but they wear out quickly. Uh, that's that's the compromise, isn't it? It really is. 
Brian, you said you like to go around corners and drag your toes. Do you not change your riding style when you're riding two up on a long distance ride? Or do you just yes, say... He does. Does yes, he? he does. Yes, he does. The kidneys suffer if I don't. <laughs> so, but, but isn't part of that, not just surely stabbing you in the back, but isn't part of that knowing that you've got all this extra weight, that you're on a long trip, and that the easier you are on the throttle, the, the more wear you're going to get out of that back tire? No, well, it depends where you are. You know, if, it's not. If, if you're in, it, <laughs> no, no, it I mean, it's not, that, that doesn't that doesn't matter to you. I can tell the way you answered. <laughs> you want the thrill. You want the fun the, of the ride. You don't care the about rip. the tires. What you're saying? Yes, that's exactly right. The tires need <laughs> to be worn out. If you're in the Pyrenees or in the Alps, regardless of whether you're on a long trip or not, you're going to have fun. Mm. That's Thank all there is to it. I mean, that's right. That's it. Brian, you were talking about um, uh, roads in Australia just now. One of the things that I noticed there was that the further into the outback I got and the course of the gravel, you know, the, the, the asphalt surface to the road, the faster I was eating through the tyres. It was that combination yeah. of heat and the course. Yeah, and it sure. really yep. made a difference because there were really long stretches. Is it Mount Isa out to three ways? Yep. Yep. That one section yep. there, most of that road was black and it was really coarse. And I was gobsmacked at how much rubber that ate. It got to me. Yeah, quite worried. Yeah, that's right. And, and I try to tell guys here in, in um, you know, Victoria, in the, in the southern part of Australia, that you're going to wear tyres out quicker up there. Oh, no, I won't. I'm, I'm really good rider. I don't do that. Well, mate, you're, you're travelling in a straight line. It's coarse, it's hot, and you're going to go – you're going to sit on a speed limit of 130 in some, in some places where it's been no speed limit. Um, uh, you can um, really crank it up, but, you know, you've got to wear a tyre out. Simple as that. When I was about um, a year into the big trip, um, I got talking to a, another motorcyclist that I, I met and we were talking about tyres. And he said to me, so um, how fast do you pull away? And I said, well, I uh, really think about it. I just pull away at what seems to be the appropriate speed. And um, how often do you jam your brakes on hard? And I said, well, I try not to very often because our ATGSs don't have very good brakes anyway. And he just laughed and he said, well, the reason I'm asking is because if you want to get good tyre wear, then slow down with your pull-offs and gently brake. And that make a massive difference on a big journey. Mm. Just generally being a smooth rider oh, as opposed smooth. to herky-jerky yeah. makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and I, I, I was scratching around with a couple of guys and I was on the big um, blunt instrument, the Kawasaki GTR, and, uh, you know, tight corners where you're trying to pull up 300 kilos plus a bike. Um, uh, I scoped the front tyre because you're hooking corners, you're lent over, you're braking, all those sorts of things, and wore that out real quick. But, you know, that's what it is. When you mentioned earlier on about um, uh, alternative tyres that you find along the way, um, I found that in a lot of developing world countries, just don't get big bike tyre full stop. But um, quite often, mm. you'll be able to get um, smaller CC tyres. So, um, for example, for a while, I had um, a 250cc um, front tyre on Libby. And yeah, it was, mm. it was all right. But I wasn't going fast, so I wasn't over the speed rating. I was certainly over the weight rating. But yeah. um, I wasn't yeah. too shy to do that because it was what, it, what was available. It works. And, and as I said before, I've been riding older bikes now. And uh, the, the, both the, well, the 750 Honda is wearing out a back tyre really quickly. They're heavy on the back. Um, 
but looking at the width of the tire, it's it's it, it looks like it's uh, very skinny. But um, and some people fall into the trap of over tiring their bike, putting a fat, the fattest tire they can get in, and all that sort of stuff. It's rubbish. That the reason why um, the manufacturers recommended a specific tire is because that's what works best with that bike. Yeah, it's engineered for that tire. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you put yeah, a wider yeah, tire, yeah. you change everything. And it's an all-around thing. Yeah. Um, way back in 1969, my goodness, uh, 1969, I was road racing a T500 Suzuki, the, the 500 two-stroke twin, just production class, and just couldn't quite get enough traction, and I wanted to get better tires on it. So we thought, well, we'll put bigger, fatter tires on it. So we did put big, fat tires on it. What a truck. I mean, I, yeah, I exactly. ran it in practice and pulled them off. It yeah, was it was yeah, literally yeah. like driving a truck. It was horrible. Yeah, that's right. My, my, yes, I had I'm, I'm glad you explained that because yeah. 1969, Michelle wouldn't even be alive, I don't think. <laughs> well, I, no comment. I was barely. <laughs> I wasn't. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The things we're talking about time gone by. When you sit and you look at photographs of the very early days, um, folks who were traveling around the world or, you know, transcontinental trips and so on, you look at the tires that they've got on, most of them, they've just got road tires. It's road what was available at the time and that's what they used. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I was looking at a photograph the other day because I'm in, infatuated with this R90S at the moment. There's guys traveling on corrugated dirt roads on R90Ss with road tires on it, you know, mm-hmm. through yep. mud and all that sort of stuff. No problem. Yep. I use my R100S, which is effectively the same as an R90S, just a little later and 1000 cc. Um, but strictly road tires. And I've got pictures and I did an article for Cycle Canada on gravel roads in BC. Um, rode yeah. it everywhere, and that was with little handlebars, not even big bars, you know, semi, yeah. not quite racing bars, but, you know, down low. And it was fine. You rode the bike appropriately for the conditions and what it was. That's that's exactly the point. I mean, I rode with um, Sean and Lance Thomas, not not that that far, but they were on their um, big GSs and they had um, knobbly tires on, and we were riding on dirt, and I was on an F800, but with road tires. And up until that time, I hadn't really been that bothered that I was on road tires. But suddenly being with those two and, well, their big bikes, just they were riding them like they were 250s. And yes, okay, part of that's to do with the fact that they're both darn good riders. But I'm sure that the tires made a big difference too. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you could you could argue that, I don't know, that, you know, you used to hunt with a, a bow and arrow, but there's guns now, right? I mean, the times have changed <laughs> and, and there's more tools, there's more, more choice. Maybe that was a bad example, but, you know, what I'm saying is that there's there's better tools and there's more choice. And yeah, back in the day, you know, they would, they would use what was available. I'm sure that if back in the day there were better tires, they would have used them, obviously. Everyone's using the best they can, but but to your point, Sam, when you're saying that that these the riders back when you look, you know, from many years ago that were riding around the world, riding any distance at all, riding motorcycles, they were just on standard street tires because that's all there was. Then in, in that thought process, then what you should be looking for is just the longest lasting tire, period, right? I mean, it shouldn't matter anything but longevity. Is that what you do? No, no, I want a combination. 
Yeah. And, uh, I mean, this brings us back to what Michelle started off by saying, and that was, we, um, we have a choose, choice. So you choose something that's best suited to the to the range of riding that you're likely to be doing. But longevity is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I take longevity as being second. Number one for me is traction, handling, safety. Longevity, yep. if I can get it, great. But it's not my first priority for sure. If you're sliding down the road... I don't care how long those tires last. It didn't do you any good. <laughs> uh, how yeah. far do you wear your tires down? Uh, wherever the nearest place is that I can get a good set of tires for the next spot. Mm. You're yeah, not going down to get way. the most miles out of it. I mean, because you've no. seen what some people do. They'll, they'll ride them, well, like Brian did, right down to the cords. I know that wasn't, yeah, you know, by it. choice. There's, no, no, no. Um, you know, I'll... If I go down to a sixteenth of an inch, I'm very nervous. I'd rather have an eighth of an inch of tread left. All you need is one heavy rain with almost slick tires, and you're in deep doo-doo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bad, bad idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've told you the story about the guy in Zimbabwe whose plan was to ride the length of Africa on one set of tires, and he'd burned through um, the tread much faster than he thought he was going to. So every time he had a puncture that wrecked an inner tube, he just stuck the inner tube on the inside of the tire. So he, he was well through the thread, um, but he was still determined to ride down to Cape Town on this one set of tires. Well, having said that, I did Africa on one set of tires. Yeah, it's possible. It's wow. possible. Of course. Yeah. Um, However, there's caveats to that. (laughs) One is we had to fly from Cairo to Kenya, to Nairobi. We couldn't go through. We weren't allowed to go through. Um, And I was running a Metzler ME88 on the back, which is a pure street tire. Uh, Very good traction, but with a big high weight rating. It was rated for uh, 760 pounds on the back, which on a 418 tire is really good. Now, remember... These are 418s, not 180, 90, whatever, 17, super-duper modern 1200 GS tires. There's a huge difference. Huge difference. Like my 418 rear looks like it's about half the size of my 1200 GS rear. It's, it's just scary just looking at it. Um, and I had a dual-sport Bridgestone something or other on the front. I can't remember. And they were both quite done when we got to the end. But even through sand, mud, dirt, gravel, it was fine. We rode to the conditions and the tires we had. And I don't think a knobby tire would have done me any good whatsoever on all those conditions. We're two up. We're loaded. We're going slow. If if it's if I know that the road ahead is nasty and muddy and horrible, I'm going to sit and wait till it dries out. I'm not in a hurry. You know, you've got to plan a little bit ahead. If we'd had to replace the tires halfway in Nairobi in... 1997, I think, in Nairobi, buying a new replacement rear tire for that bike might have been a little hard. You know, it would have been a 250cc rear tire. And two up, no way it would have been safe. I wouldn't have ridden on it. So. Has anyone, has anyone had a, a puncture that you think you fixed and then uh, you get still get a flat tire? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, this is years and years ago. I, I um, uh, just might surprise you. I, I, I'd... Um, Smashed up in the 750 Honda. Anyway, I, I borrowed a mate's um, bike um, to to ride from Melbourne to Mildura, and it was a uh, a Kawasaki 750 two-stroke. Oh, yeah, triple. Uh, <laughs> Fun bike. And uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, you, you get up to about 
you truck along at about three or four or five thousand RPM and you think, oh, this is this thing's a slug and then it hits the power band and all of a sudden you're eating the instruments as the front wheel comes up. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um I I got a and I was just trucking along and um the back tire went flat in the middle of nowhere. I found a guy to help me um uh, take it in and I didn't have any tools with me, so we, we pulled it out. Yeah, sure enough, there was a hole in the tube. Patched that up, put it all back together, checked the inside of the tyres, you do the whole bit, went about another 100 kilometres and went flat again. So well, at that stage I cracked it, I, I pulled it out and um, basically got a ride to where I was going, about 120 miles up the road. Um, took it into a workshop, pulled it apart, checked it out again, everyone checked it out. Uh, put a new tube in it, brand new tube, hitchhiked back to uh, where the bike was, put it all back together. It's 120 miles hitchhiking uh, and then rode about another 100 kilometres and it went flat again. And by that stage, I just about cracked it with this bike. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I pulled the wheel out and hitchhiked back to Melbourne and took it into a bike shop and we couldn't work it out. And what, what it was was the inside of the tyre had a slit in it in manufacture. Mm-hmm. And as it got hot, it would flex and mm-hmm. pinch the tube. But yep. you wouldn't find it. You would not even see it. Uh, uh, and that, that was through manufacture. So, yeah, I had exactly the same thing, Brian, exactly the same thing that mine came from hitting the rim of a pothole. And you just oh, couldn't. Yeah. When you took the, the tire off, you just could not see that the split was there. If I had pushed no. down on the tire, when the tire was yeah. off, then I might have opened it up just enough to see. But yeah, yeah it was it was trapped in the tube, and um, I had a really lucky experience because I'd been yeah, okay um, riding a little bit of zippity through the mount the Chimani Mani Mountains, and there are sheer mm. drops off to the sides. This is in Zimbabwe, just beautiful, absolutely fantastic roads, and almost nobody around. And I got down to the to the to the flat ground at the bottom of the mountains, pulled over and into a little lay-by to see what the time was and to have a drink of water, check my map. And um, there was a and um, <laughs> yeah, it, it had waited yeah, until I was safe before it popped. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. So your, your bike takes care of you, boy. That's great. Uh, yeah, well, yes. <laughs> Well, this this yeah. damn this damn seven fifty Kawasaki. I, I went back to my mate Kevin. He had a, a gold wing as well. I said, "Mate, you could have just given me the gold wing. You know, <laughs> it would have been better." <laughs> but here we are. The next weekend, we we put a new front, a new back tire on, a new tube, and all that sort of stuff. I'm sitting on the back of his gold wing with a, a whole wheel for the seven fifty, and we rode we're 150 miles to where the bike was <laughs> to put it back in. Must have looked a sight. <laughs> Two blokes in the tire. <laughs> yeah, my my repeated flats have just been you know user error sort of thing. Rushing the the patch really is what it is. Rushing yeah. the patch, getting something there, or missing something there, but or missing something on the inside of the tire. That's that's where I'm yep. wrong. And it's just been missing something. Just being too quick. Yeah, yeah. I had that happen in uh, South America, and I had a little got a nail, patched it looked at the tire, and there was just the tiniest of rough bits of rubber where the nail had come through. And I thought, nah, it'll be fine. No, it wasn't. About 50K later, flat again, yeah, same thing. So I had to patch the inside of the tire. Yeah, it's so I put a patch on the tire, and it was fine. No problem. Talking so of, of really patches, 
can I can I suggest that anybody, whether they were um, riding with tubeless tires or with tubes, take a t- um, a, a truck in a tube tire patch yeah. with them. Don't take yeah. up much space. Yeah. Sit flat in the bottom of the pannier. But for all of those sorts of things, wonderful solution. Yeah, also known as a boot patch. A boot, boot patch. patch yeah. Yep. Oh, it's a boot patch. Don't ask me why. I don't know, but it's a boot patch. The other one to take is you can get a patch which is a plug and a patch in one. Think of an umbrella. Yeah. Oh. It yeah. looks like an umbrella. Mm-hmm. And you repair the inside of the tire like you normally would. You prepare it, rough it, and glue it. And put a little glue in the hole, and then you pull this thing through. It's got a metal nail on the end of it. And you stick it through from the inside, pull it up, and then do the usual patch rubbing and you know abrading yeah. and stuff like that from the inside. And that is considered to be a very good, high-quality, permanent repair in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, I use them. I, yeah, I, I carry great. them. They're great. Yeah, yep. They're really good. Absolutely. Right, nice. I, another little story. Chill and I got a flat tire in uh, Karakoram Mountains. I'm not sure. We're coming down, Hindu, we're coming down through Pakistan in the middle of nowhere, looking at the Indus River and, and um, the um, – a, a big drop off on one side and a cliff top on the other side of the um, the, the little gravel road. Got a flat tire, no one around. So I pulled the pannier off and you know, find it to plug it and all the rest of it. And we surrounded. People came clambering down the mountain. Didn't as soon they? as the bike stopped, people yeah. appeared from nowhere. Yeah, yep. and stood about twenty feet away from us and just watched me work on this tire. And I wasn't really happy. It was still losing a bit of air. And we got into Islamabad, I think. And um, I, I fueled up. And there, where I fueled up, there was a guy patching tyres or fixing tyres. And I just watched him for a while. And um, I decided, well, you know, I, I might get this repaired better with this guy. So I pulled the wheel off and uh, he couldn't speak English or whatever, but we just sort of communicated and um, he um, he looked at the tire. I didn't have a plug with me, but what he did was he cut up an old tube, rolled it up, heated it over the fire he had going, so that the the rubber melted into uh, sort of a uh, like a, a plug, I suppose. And then he um, put it through the the tire, put a patch on the inside of the tire, got one of those old fashioned vulcanizer wind up things, and a couple of irons. Heated them up on the on the fire, and we um, and a couple of cheek clamps, and clamped that onto the tire. I had to buy him a smoke, uh, uh, a can of coke, and we sat there for ten minutes. And I swear it was a better patch than you would get anywhere. It was just amazing what he could do. These people can do things out of nothing, yep. and uh, that was that was a great repair. That tire lasted all the way through to where we got a new one. Yeah, um, I want to. There was oh, oh, I know about. I was going to make a comment about carrying tires. <laughs> the, the, the one, <laughs> the one tire that I did carry was a tubeless tire, and by the time I got to where I wanted to put it on, after having been strapped on the bike, the metal cord inside the bead was kinked, so there was a bit of a bend in the tire. Would it seal? No way. Absolutely would not seal. Ended up having to put a, um, an inner tube in it in order to get it to seal. So if you're going to carry tubeless tires and you're running a tubeless system, 
make sure you got tubes just in case because you could have the same problem. I went through four CO2 cartridges trying to get it to seal. Nope, not a chance. Mm. I think one of the tricks for us was that we had three mounting points um, for the tires. And one of those mounting points was basically, um, if you think of a, a ballpoint pen, um, double the thickness of it, that used to, to stick out from um, behind the panniers. And the tires would sit on those. So there was no real pressure on the straps. Um, and that made a huge difference. I never had any problem getting tires to come out on the beat because they weren't having to be strapped on so tight everywhere else. That um, pen thing that I was just talking about, by the way, when we weren't carrying spare tires, that just unclipped and folded sideways so it was flush with the back of the bike. It's a great little bit of kit. Your bike has a tire carrier? Is that what that is? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It was one of my on-the-road bodges. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So simple, I'll, I'll send you a photograph. Good idea. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Just on carrying uh, tubes with different sized wheels, do you carry one tube or two different tubes? Uh, if, depending on what I'm doing and where I'm going, I will generally carry two. Um, I know a guy who put a 321 tube in an 18-inch rear wheel because he only carried the one tube and he knew that would work. And it was literally folded up inside the tire. This is on a dirt bike. Rode it home, forgot about it, rode it for another two months, completely forgot about it. And then in the spring, went to change the tires and, oh, surprise, and it continued to work. Now, it probably never went over 70 miles an hour. And it was a dirt bike. It wasn't really heavy. So you can get away with just about anything for a period of time. But I wouldn't do that on a big bike. It would be a 21 into a 17 and, you know, push your luck. Yeah, I carried one, which was for a 1917. But uh, I just carried one, but I didn't have to use it. That's why I asked. Yeah. Yeah. If you're running a tubeless system, I think carrying a 19-inch tube will get you home. Carrying both yeah. tubes, I, I wouldn't bother. Just carry a 19. Yes, it'll work. No, it's not perfect. Fix it properly as soon as you can, but it'll get you home. Yeah, but I'd be like that other guy. I'd probably forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really don't want to change the tire again. I mean, I just did no, it. No, <laughs> exactly. A tube is bulky. It takes up a lot of yeah. space. It really well, does. don't forget there's, there's different kinds of tubes too. I mean, you can get a standard light-duty tube uh, which I what I call a light duty tube versus a heavy duty or an ultra heavy duty tube, which is like four millimeters or something thick and massively bulky. Mm-hmm. On my dirt bike, I use yeah. heavy duty tubes. But what do I carry? I carry a standard, plain, ordinary, cheap vinyl, not even good rubber tube because it's very compact and it will work. Good enough. Yeah. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't the heavy duty ones not advised to go like highway speeds? Don't they? They don't right. recommend running right. them in, in, in bikes, especially as you mentioned, big bikes, Grant. Yeah. Um, they're, they're yeah, technically, I wouldn't do it. They're not supposed to be. They're just going to get too hot. And right. that's just going to wear your tire down faster because that's one thing I did want to mention is that from what everybody's saying here, heat, the things that affect the tire wear and how long you're going to get out of the tire, heat, load, uh, speed, uh, and of course the, uh, the road surface and the way you ride. And the way you ride can really be big. You, if you've got a 990, for instance, a KTM 990, the way you ride is going to make a huge difference. <laughs> KLR, maybe yeah. not so much, Michelle. <laughs> but, yeah, don't forget to add in tire pressure. Very funny. Sorry. <laughs> tire pressure. Yes, that. thank you, Grant. That's, tire that's, pressure yeah. matters huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
most of it's about heat, isn't it? The, the hotter yes. that you get the tire, the faster it's going to wear off. Yeah. And I remember there was at Americade a number of years ago, um, Dunlop was working on tires and doing their thing. And they went around and they measured most of the bikes there. Over 50% were over eight pounds pressure underinflated. Yeah. Mm. Wow. 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 <laughs> so check your tire pressures more often. Yeah, th- that's a good question. Do you guys check your tire pressure every time before you get on your bike? I do. Do you, every time you with a gauge, Michelle? I uh, do. It's, it's just it's a habit that I learned really from motorcycle safety class. I go through this. It, I, the acronym was T clock, and I don't even remember what that was. But T was for tires. So I check. <laughs> I check my lights probably you know once a week. I you know push all my brake levers and test all of that. But tires and oil, I check every time. Hmm. Yep. Good idea. <laughs> Tires, I do check like when I get on the bike, but not with a gauge. It's it's a it's a kick test or a thumb test is what yeah. I do, and you kind of get used to it. I mean, you know, yeah. as, as long as it's close enough, it'll be good there. But Brian, are you are you gauging yours? Uh, it depends which bike I'm riding. Well, the, the G is that tells you um, what the tire pressure is anyway oh, um, with a tire pressure monitor. But uh, if I've, I'm riding a Triumph, which has uh, got um, uh, alloy wheels, uh, which tubeless tyres, they don't change too much, but I check them periodically. If I'm riding a tyre with tubes in it, yes, I check it. Yeah. Well, they change when they get a leak. They tend to lose uh, with uh, uh, heat and cold, just normal heat and cold, they tend to lose more pressure, I think. Don't you agree, Grant? Yeah, it depends a lot on the material of the tube. Like I mentioned earlier, there's like a, a vinyl tube and there's a natural rubber tube. The natural rubber tubes yeah. feel that they're, they're stickier when you manipulate them as opposed to kind of slick with the vinyl ones. Yeah, the vinyl ones don't lose very much at all, whereas the natural rubber ones do leak. But they're also better in that if you get a nail, they lose air more slowly, whereas yes. vinyl one, yeah, it, the, the natural rubber doesn't tear, whereas the vinyl ones, I've personally had them tear, like six-inch long tears yeah. from a nail. Yep. Um, and yeah. that's going to be an instant deflation. So the nat- yeah, I, I prefer I, the natural rubber tubes, yeah. but, but they leak. The bike, so. But with the bike just sitting there, it's not so much a leak, it's a leech of air. So yeah. I would put it, uh, just sort of, you lose two or three pounds over, you know, maybe a couple of weeks yeah. just sitting there. Yeah. You were saying that uh, you do a, a pinch test with your thumb while well, you got a much stronger thumb than I do. Yeah, you, grab, um, you you just grab a hold of like, you know, with two hands, you grab your rim yeah. and you just shove your thumb into it. But most times it's the foot. I give it a kick. I can tell by the feel of it if, if it's inflated. And then if I start to question it all, then I'll do the thumbs thing. Yeah. Um, my recommendation, if the bike is on its side stand, put your foot on the rim and give it a push and you'll be have a much better indication of how, how much air is in it. Mm, if it's tip. fully inflated... It really won't move, but if it's a little bit soft, it'll move. And you you get doing this a much bigger change than you would with either of the tests you're using. So it's much more much easier to tell. Yeah, it's not looking good, or it's okay. Well, the kick is also audible, right? So you get yeah. a you get a sound to it when you kick it, and and uh, I think that that for me tells me a lot with it. But I, I like your idea of stepping on the rim. I hadn't never thought of that. Yeah, it works well. That's what I use all the time. I do that every time I get on the bike. 
I learned that one in uh, South America where I discovered uh, the local kids know what those valve caps with the little prong sticking up are for. Uh, <laughs> you understand? Uh, Entertainment. That's, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Unscrew the valve. Yeah. Watch the gringo go crazy. <laughs> bring, bring cousin in to fix the tire. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Sam, are you checking your tire pressure before you go? Um, I don't do it every time, but if if I if the bike's not been ridden for a week, then yeah, absolutely. Um, if if I'm riding every day, then no, not every day. But a friend of mine, we were having this conversation, and um, he very quietly went away. And the next time I saw him, he presented me with a, a set of screw-on tire or automatic tire pressure gauge <laughs> things with a, a the screen that goes up on the handlebars and all this sort of stuff. Electronic is most. So let's see how I get on with those, but I don't want to get out of the habit of just automatically checking my tires. It's, um, it's a, it just takes a few minutes to do, and then I'm happy. But I mean, he said to me, the reason for that he's such a fan of these is that they'll go on any bike, and when you're riding, if you start getting um, a bit of a leak going, then you get some forewarning. And I thought, yeah, okay, I can see the point of that. That, that sounds good. Yeah, I've never had a slow leak on the road ever. What I have had is massive blowouts. So yeah. I'm not, th- uh, those things wouldn't help me. I haven't had a massive blowout. Yeah. I, I've only yeah. had slow leaks. So, me too. And I, I prefer the slow leak scenario. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I oh, can yeah. handle that. <laughs> me so, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was chuckling when Sam was talking about um, getting to the end of a long stretch of nasty road and then the tire went flat. Well, Susan and I had in Peru, it's when you're coming down from Bolivia, there's wonderful road, but it's massive drop-offs all the way along. And we came around a corner and it went flat big time. Bike literally went sideways. And wow. I managed to straighten it out. It was really lucky. It was kind of an all over the place, all at once kind of thing. Um, and a nail had come through an outside wall of the tire and split the tube. Um, Did it actually blow when like you heard a, like okay. a pop, a bang sort of thing? No, or- I just felt this suddenly I'm sideways. The tire yeah. didn't come off the rim, but it came. the bead came off. So the tire was just flopping around on the mm, rim. That's, well, wow, that's scary. Yeah. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was not good. But that's yeah. one of the reasons yeah. why I'm a big fan of tubeless. They're not likely exactly to do that. Right. They'll stay on you, the rim really, really well. That's, that's what I was going to say. They'll get, they'll, get, they'll get really mushy, but they won't roll off the rim. I've had that happen with tube tyres, roll off the rim, and that's scary, and you get no warning at all yep. um, when it's flat, flat really quickly. But um, having a flat tyre on a tubeless, it, it gets mushy, and you can feel it, and you've got time to pull up. I've got to say, the tyre pressure monitors are great like that. They give you an extra warning when it gets below 20 psi. But having said that, tyre pressure monitors in BMWs are horrendously expensive. And uh, they only last about five years and you've got to replace them. But, gee, they're expensive. I missed part of what you said there. Did you say tyre pressure sensors and BMWs are horrendously expensive? (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) That's trademark. Yeah. <laughs> well, we all know the cheapest thing on a BMW, don't we? Yeah, me. Yep, it's me. The nut behind the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's, that's an old one. I just, just want to make one last comment about the, the tubeless tires. We had a guy riding a Hum in Spain on a 1200 GS. He had a flat about 50 kilometers from check-in, and he knew that if he rode it, he'd be okay. He could check in on time and he ended up winning because that's what he did uh, as opposed to fixing it. 
And when he got back, the tire was still stuck on the rim. He said, I rode briskly, not stupid, you know, taking it easy, but he did not hang about. He was moving right along and the tire was stuck on there and it was just fine. Then we took the tire off and we scooped out three big handfuls of rubber from the inside of the tire, from the tire rubbing against the rim. So there you are. It can be done. Mind you, remember, he's not riding loaded. He's running solo and empty. But, how how um, much does he win by coming uh, in first? A trophy. <laughs> and the rim costs <laughs> the rim costs how much? What is that? About two thousand dollars? The rim no no, the rim is fine. Just the tire was toast. No, I know, but I'm saying that the chance of damaging the rim, you know, yeah. you could be looking at a yeah. couple thousand dollars anyway. Yeah. yeah. Details. It's a race. Right. Okay. So I'll just leave it at that. Brian, I had one question for you. By running tubeless tires so that they don't deflate quickly, does that negate the need for tire pliers for you? I wish. wish. Just curious. Just thought I'd put that out there. Maybe we should should wrap up our tire talk with that. Because we could be here all day. That's right. We we could go on and on. But it's interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, I mean, the only I was going to ask about about uh, pillions, but I, I mean, it's kind of tongue in cheek. But I was going to ask Shirley or or anyone who who has pillion experience. Do you care what tires are on the bike, Shirley? No, not really. It, as like, long as they're black and they've got rubber and they stick to the thing and they don't fall off or. So for <laughs> you, it makes Jim, what a question. No, but me. no, I, I'm. This is I, I'm being like it's kind of tongue in cheek, but I mean I'm I'm sort of serious with it as well because you don't get more confidence with with a certain tire over another tire. Like you don't feel any difference. Uh, no, the only thing I do feel uncomfortable is when we're on hiding hours and it's wet because I yes. know they get a bit slippery. That's the only mm. thing that I worry about, yeah. and I just wish in my heart of hearts that we could get rid of the expletive deleted fire, tire pliers out of the bottom of my pannier. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you wish you would slow down. Just saying. Just yeah. saying. And I have to agree with uh, Shirley on the Heidnows. I was loaned a bike by somebody in Europe, uh, Touratech, and had used to, uh, Heidnows on it, and they were you know, well broken in and stuff. I got three blocks, turned around and took it back and said, I'm t- take those off and putting something else on. Uh, because I went around a corner and just about lost the front end on a little tiny bit of water, and I was not going quick. Ooh. I was mm-hmm. not pleased. Yep. Yep. Traction, safety, stay on, stay r- with the rubber side down is more important <laughs> than anything else. Right. Yeah. Point. So I know Susan doesn't worry about it because she knows that that's my mantra. I go for the best tires that are going to keep us safe and alive and rubber side down, and and, th- and that's all that matters. Well, I feel like we're just going round and round with these tires. Yep. Uh, no. I got that from Sam. He just sent me that message. No, he didn't. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's take a break. And then when we come back, we're, we'll talk a little bit more about equipment for motorcycle travel. We're really pleased to have the continued support of freshtracks.co.uk. Freshtracks has been with us for a long time now. Freshtracks works with companies or groups to motivate, inspire, build communication skills through team building. And they've been doing this for many years with a host of programs to suit any company's requirements. 
I, I helped a long time ago with a, a company, not Fresh Tracks, but this was another company that I helped do canoeing trips for, for my, my part was the canoeing, but they were, and they were doing the training program, but I was so impressed with what this style of program did for pulling the, the whole team together. It was very powerful. And we talk about this with motorcycling. You know, if you if you go through something with someone, how much um, how much better the connection is? Is there's a level of trust there, and it's almost like a lifelong connection you get from it. So, so this team building is very very powerful. Fresh Tracks works with companies like Mars, Pfizer, Comic Relief, and many more. Their website is freshtracks.co.uk. Anytime you you're dealing with them, mention there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Freshtracks.co.uk. I know we don't like to talk about having a crash, you know, but if it ever happens, you can imagine the value of having someone representing you that really understands motorcycling and dealing with a motorcycle crash. Cass and Moses is a law firm that has been representing motorcyclists for over 30 years, and they understand the viewpoint of the rider. And not only that, they understand everything to do with motorcycling. That's really important. I also noticed on their website, they've got some information of what to do if you've been involved in a crash. And this is, this is part of your planning, you know, same as anything else, just preparation for anything. You just want to be prepared. Don't get caught. So drop by the website. You, you can get this. It teaches you things like preserving the evidence, which they say is vital. Writing down things like surroundings, road conditions, weather, direction of travel. I mean, I mean all these types of things that you need that can make the difference in the long run. Knowing what to do if you're involved in a crash, I think is key. Now, um, another one they list, by the way, is never admit fault. I think that's really important because that's something I've learned over the years is that um, things can get messed up with a crash. And the last thing you want to do is admit fault when you don't really know if you're technically at fault. Bottom line is, if you've been hurt in a motorcycle accident, even if you don't think you have a case, Cass and Moses says you should call them and talk to them about it because you never know. Their, uh, their number is easy to remember. Here it is. 1-800-MOTORCYCLE. Pretty cool. I like that. 1-800-MOTORCYCLE. Meanwhile, like I said, if you don't have a if you don't have an issue, you haven't had an issue, you might want to drop by their website. Look at these tips they've got. And this book they have, they have a free book that you can download. It's Standing Up for Bikers That Go Down. And apparently deals with a better understanding of insurance that you should have and, and a whole bunch of stories from 30 years of representing injured motorcyclists. So I think that could be quite interesting for all riders to have a look at. Their website is cassandmoses.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, cassandmoses.com. Okay, I guess we'll start with talking about boots. For adventure riding, people talk about, we all talk about tall, heavy boots, well-supported, and it's, and it's well understood that a solid, big, heavy boot is protection for your feet or lower leg. Kind of like insurance, really, is what it is for your, your lower leg and your ankle and your foot. But for a long distance trip, are they worth carrying? Are you guys riding with big, heavy motocross style boots or what sort of compromises are you making? Brian, why don't we start with you? What do you wear for boots on a long distance trip? Uh, I've got a really sad story to tell. My good riding boots have got a hole in them. So I'm in the process of trying to get new ones. And I wear um, the best ones I've had are Axos which I don't know whether they make them anymore, but they're um, a semi-motocross um, uh, boot. They've got, they've got two clips, not four clips, Velcro. They're waterproof, and they're like a pair of slippers to wear. They're beautiful boots. 
but um, heavy well, slippers, but slippers. Heavy slippers, <laughs> yeah. But they but they but they're worn out and um, they're not. They're, yeah, okay. There's a bit of sh- chafing on the side where they've uh, hit the ground um, going around corners, but where they've worn out is on the serrated pegs underneath because I've been standing up and putting a bit of weight on them on the on the um, on the BMW foot pegs. So I'm in the process of um, getting a new set, but I've got a set of Dionese boots, which are road-going boots, which are pretty good. Um, I did have a pair of handmade um, leather boots, which were fantastic. By a little guy who, you know, got a piece of cardboard and traced your foot and measured your calf and made them perfectly to fit your feet. Um, I bought them back in the 70s and I still have them. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> he seven. went up and died because yeah. he, he was so yeah. old, this yeah, man making the, the boots. Yeah, in the 70s, yep, and still going. And obviously, um, he wasn't much of a businessman because making boots that last that long is not good for business. I know. <laughs> he only got one <laughs> pair from him and he's died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but, but my, my question is, do, are you wearing different boots for home riding than you are on a long distance trip? Um, no. No, Same no I've, I've, decided, I've decided on these, um, uh, they're, they're, they're like a compromise boot. They're, they're half between a road boot and a motocross boot. Mm-hmm. They're and, long, so they protect yeah, your Yeah, yeah, they're right and, up to your calf. Yeah. But a friend of ours, um, uh, and, and look, I have worn anything from gym boots in the old days to hiking boots and all sorts of things, but I, I find that uh, I like the shin protection um, and um, good ankle protection. I think that's a must. And we had a friend, Bert, remember Bert Shirley? He had um, an accident um, and – He's only got like half his legs missing because, well, you know, like his calf and all the rest of it because of a bad accident. And if and if he was wearing good strong boots, it wouldn't have been like that. So, mm. to me, they are the best protection you can get. It's uh, good boots. But you can't when you're travelling, Jim. You can't afford to take two pairs of boots. No. One for when you're riding around the city, and and one for when you're out and about. You know, it's just not enough space. Yeah. So you just have to buy a compromise set. But I had a beautiful pair of Italian boots. Then we came off the bike and the sole of one of my boots was ripped off. But my foot was fine and I thought, my oh, crikey, I'm glad I didn't have, you know, really soft yeah. sneakers or whatever on my foot would have just been mangled. Mm. And um, I those boots were replaced with another Later model from the same manufacturer. Please don't ask me the name of it. But I used to have Fusport boots and they leaked. They had no membrane behind the zip. Yeah. So water would come up off the bike and just sit on the zipper and come into my boots. Or if we were, one day we were at the World Superbikes and it rained. It actually rained so much they cancelled the second race. But standing in the rain waiting for them to decide whether they were standing, going to start the second race, my boots just filled up with water. Uh, they were just such a pain. You really need, even on the back, you need solid boots, comfortable boots, and waterproof boots. That's where I was going to go to is that riding pillion, you're at just the same risk as what the rider is or the, the person oh, in control. Like you're, you're on the bike. Absolutely. So are, are yours yeah. motocross-style boots? No, mine, um, uh, they've got a bit of a heel on them and um, they're a bit stylish looking around the toe, but they come up to my calf and um, they're very sturdy and a lot of protection. 
But if I threw them on with a pair of jeans and went out to a cafe or a pub or something, it would just look like I had dress boots on. But mm. they're not dress boots. You wouldn't. I wouldn't go strolling through the countryside in them. They're not um, hiking boots. They're, you know, they're very robust, but they're just a little bit stylish. They don't look quite so chunky as a lot of um, a lot of motorcycle boots that that are built as a um, unisex boot. These are specifically designed for women in that they're a bit more stylish, a bit more um, shaped to your foot. And right, we, but we still big clunky. Yeah, and we carry boot polish. It's clean. Oh yeah, keep, keep I don't nice. like. Do not like dirty boots. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I I didn't give a toss about dirty school shoes, so it's nothing from my childhood. <laughs> but I uh, I we've got a little mini brush, and I buy a little pad of um, black boot polish and an old cloth, and that lives in one of the pods on the front of the bike, and I polish the boots quite a lot. Well, One must have standards, surely, you know. Yes. He says I don't with his English Sam, accent. Sam, you will know that I don't have many. But that is one. That I- one one's footwear is of the utmost importance. What? Correct. <laughs> you judge a gentleman. But don't you, I don't know, you see, this probably is just so old-fashioned. But if you see someone with really dirty boots or dirty shoes, you know, if you're walking through the city and you see someone in a suit with a really pair of scuffed shoes, think, you just don't care. I just feel like I'm getting picked on here. Something fierce. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I don't even wear yeah. a suit. We don't want to look at your closet, right? <laughs> well, I only have one Sorry. pair. <laughs> I also polish my boots when I'm traveling. Birgit does the same. Um, it's an investment. Your footwear is so important when you're out there. Um, take care of them and they'll take care of you. Simple. Yeah. This comes from polish. a man who carries stuff to polish his shoes, but half a toothbrush. <laughs> That's a very good point. I say, are we getting back into priorities again? It's a very good point, Sam. Now, that, now yeah. that, that question's come up. I'm just curious: does your polishing brush is it cut in half or something? No, I don't carry a polishing brush, but I do have a rag with lots of holes in. Right, yeah. right, yeah. and you put the holes in to reduce weight. I'm assuming. Oh, of course, of course. Right. <laughs> okay, I just use a waterproofer, which does close enough to put to a polish, but a little bit of waterproofer, which is also um, good for the leather, a little bit of leather food, shall we say. Um, yeah. That makes a big difference. And a rag. And that gets done when in, when appropriate. Whether I, I, use, not. I use beeswax and, and a rag and that works. I had a friend, David <laughs> Parkinson, and um, he was a, um, a Royal Marine and uh, he rode around the world. And he said for the first six months or so, every morning, he had to clean his boots because all of his time as a Royal Marine, that was what he did. You cleaned your boots. And he said that it was actually one of the best thinking times of the day for him. Um, he did it in the mornings before he sat out on the road and just watched the, the world wake up as he was cleaning his boots. And I just thought, yeah, I, I kind of like that. I can see the point. It slows, it slows you down into the day and takes away from the rush that we all know is so damaging on a big trip. You know, yeah. when we were going to talk about boots, I was expecting we were going to talk about leather. We were going to talk about clamps. We were going to talk about soles. We were going to talk about boots that are waterproof. But instead, we're talking about how to polish our boots so that we look good. <laughs> well, I mean, following on from the last conversation, we should be talking about tread, really, shouldn't we? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> 
We should. No, yes. no. I've got to say, stocking is really carry a, 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 a woman's stocking with you is really good when you spit polish your boots. That really brings them up nice. Don't ask how he found that out. <laughs> <laughs> Were you just finding a use for the stockings? Never mind. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle. Everything everything on the bike has to have two uses. We know that. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I ride with, an, I guess what I would call an adventure boot. So it's sort of, it's got a tall upper on it. It comes up just below my knee kind of like a motocross boot, but it's a little more flexible when I'm walking. It's not quite as stiff. I think of motocross boots as being more like a ski boot where they're very inflexible at the ankle. Um, and I have used a couple different ones. I had a BMW Santiago set that I loved for the longest time. And I've been wearing a set of TCX drifters. They're waterproof, um, which is important to me. I think, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. I mean, obviously with rain and water crossings and all of that, but just, I think they seem to, to last a bit longer um, as far as the longevity and the life of the boot. So I like a tall boot with good protection. Protection is really the most important thing out of it for me. Uh, waterproof is essential, but I think comfort as Cheryl, I think is the one who mentioned, um, comfort is also important for me. And I want to be able to get out and do a little bit of walking off the bike with them. And I'm not talking, you know, long walks, but there are times that when I'm riding, I'll stop at like an overlook and it may take a quarter of a mile of walking out to like a viewpoint to take a photo. And I want to be able to feel comfortable walking in the boots or getting off the bike and walking around border crossings between checkpoints and offices and all of that. So I want something that's going to be comfortable. And, and um, that's yeah, part of I what really Shirley was have... saying about compromise, isn't it? I mean, b- because, yeah. you know, I mean, and it is with everything, everything we talk about is, is always with compromise. So you could get it better is. protection, but then it's going to make other things kind of not workable. That That's true. And I think, you know, as tall as my boots are, they're probably erring more on the side of protection and, and safety than they are stylishness and comfort. But I think um, that that seems to be my priority and, and I don't really remember ever polishing them on the road. So that says a lot about me. (laughs) (laughs) Shame on you, Michelle. Michelle. What does it say about you, Michelle? Maybe I do enough water crossings or don't. (laughs) 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 Nice recovery, Michelle. Nice recovery. We'll we'll just pretend that that's really what's happening. I'm just lazy when I get to a stop. It's it's all I can do to clean my visor. So... (laughs) So, Michelle, I'm curious now, because you're riding solo, Mm -hmm. how many pairs of shoes are you packing? Um, I'm usually, so the boots that I have, I only have that one main pair of boots. I take those, I wear those when I'm riding at home and I take those on the road. And I will usually have two other pairs of shoes with me. I know that sounds extravagant, but one is a pair of flip-flops that serve dual purpose because I use them as shower shoes when I'm traveling. Um, so I use them in showers at hostels or things like that. But I also will use them to walk down to the beach if it's hot um, out or warm weather. But then my my other pair of shoes would be either some sort of like a, a tennis shoe, sneaker type shoe, or in really humid or tropical climates, it might be something that's more of an amphibious shoe. So something like a, a keen, you know, the pairs of shoes that have the thick, heavy rubber soles and then that kind of a, a webbing system or strap system across the top. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're a little bit more breathable and, and they're more shoe than they are sandal, if that makes sense, but amphibious shoes. 
So yeah, I've got my boots, my flip-flops, and a pair of shoes of some kind. Three Nothing pairs fancy. Of shoes. Hmm. Three. Yeah, it's it's extravagant. I, I don't know if it is. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I would expect most people would have two pairs. Most people are going to have some sort of footwear yeah. doing just what you're saying, your shower and beach. And then you're obviously your riding boots. You you, you kind of need that. I think so. Sam, yeah. how about you? Um I'm, I'm, you, you know, I'm, I'm just such a fan of um, the two uses rule and keeping the weight as low as I can, except for um, spare tires, of course. Um, but what I wear on my feet is really important. Um, and my, my choice is to wear boots that I can live in on the bike and off the bike. And the only other pair of, of uh, footwear that I carry is some um, flip-flops for, for the shower and off the bike um, on hot days. And what I look for is something that's really well made. It's got to have a good crippy sole. It's got to have a hard to crush sole, but flexible. Um, thick quality leather for the foot and lower ankle areas and high padded ankle protection, um, but soft and flexible. I like lace-ups. I'm always tempted to to do what Brian does with the clips, but um, I've never actually found a pair that have, have been comfortable for me. So I always go for the lace-ups because that way I can easily adjust the fit according to um, swelling, you know, heat and altitude and that sort of thing. Um, and they've got to be waterproof. I sometimes debate when I'm going to be spending months and months and months traveling in really hot places as to whether Gore-Tex or the like is appropriate because it does make your feet get that much hotter. But I don't know. Um, in the end, I'm not swapping boots out all of the time. So I'd rather have waterproof boots on um, the wet and cold days. Um, I tend to use um, knee and shin pads, so motocross pads, because I can take those off um, when I'm off the bike. And it means that I can use my bike jeans, my riding jeans, just as ordinary um, walk around jeans at the same time. Again, that two uses thing. Um, I've been um, real fans of Altberg boots and they're actually a hiking boot company, um, but they also make both, um, motorcycle boots. So their experience um, really um, ticks in altogether. Um, and I think one of the most important things with um, boots is to give your boots rest days when you're on a really big trip. And that's one of the reasons why I love my flip-flops, not only for the showers and so on, but because I can spend a day or two walking around without my boots on. And that gives them a chance to, to really dry out properly. Um, and I think that that helps with the longevity of the boots. And it certainly helps... Um, with your foot cleanliness. Mm. And people always used to laugh at me because I set off with eight pairs of socks. But I think care of feet goes just as importantly as um, the type of boots that you have. And Birgit and I hike a lot. So sometimes we'll park up for a couple of weeks and we'll put our rucksacks on our back and we'll just head off and hike. So I want to have a pair of boots that are going to enable me to do that as well as keep me safe on the bike. And Brian's absolutely right with, yeah, you've got to have really good ankle protection. Um, and yeah, it's just got to be properly padded in the right places. Um, but for me, it's got to be flexible enough and comfortable enough for me to just get off and go hiking. So, yeah. So are those actual motorcycle boots? Because you, you said that they make hiking boots, but you didn't actually say what yours were. No, they are actually motorcycle boots. Oh, I see. Um, and they've done, you know, major testing on these. For example, when they first started doing motorcycle boots, um, the, the first um, one that they did, they did um, a crush test on it. So basically they dropped a mini, I think it was, on, on these boots and um, just had a look to see where they were weakened, where they needed reinforcing and so on. 
Um, so they've, they've got a really, really good reputation. Um, the British Armed Forces use them. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I, I've got to say, I'm a little bit against, um, uh, yeah, uh, against uh, laces. Um, I triple, triple knocked them. Um, yeah. It's, it's them getting caught too, though. Yeah, yeah. living the fear of them getting caught in yeah. something. So yeah. I always trip or knot them and tuck the ends down inside. No, but even the laces that are yeah. done up getting caught, like they can get caught on your foot peg even when you, you know, you put your foot down sort of thing. In particular, if if something happens and, and you go down on the bike, you get your foot entangled and, and it's it's much easier for them to get entangled in something. With laces. Well, I'm, I'm going to touch wood here and say that in all the years of riding, I've never had that happen and I've never even come close to it. And I'm touching wood because I hope it never does. I thought you were going to say you'd never come off, Sam, but I know that's not <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go down that road. Grant, how about you? Uh, well, I was just going to say, and, and uh, following on on the Altberg boots, Susan's been through I don't know how many boots. I just, I've lost count and never been happy. And we went around the world with a pair of uh, CD road boots, which she was okay with, um, but we could never get another pair that she was even okay with. She just didn't like them. But finally, she got a pair of custom-made Altbergs when we were in the UK, and she loves them. They're great. Really comfortable, good protection. She says she can walk around in them all the time. It's it's not a problem. Um, so another shout-out for Altberg, definitely good boots. They couldn't get a pair that were quite what I wanted. and couldn't. We didn't have time to me to get a custom pair, so I didn't. But uh, I'm wearing a pair of CD Crossfires, which are... It's kind of a motocross boot, but not quite full-on motocross boot. And But they look a lot like a motocross boot. I love them. They're absolutely fantastic. The most comfortable boot ever. Just wonderful. But they're going to die one day. They're old, but they're doing fine. But I definitely go for the greater protection. We uh, went around the world with a lot less protection, road boots. Yeah, I just wasn't really that happy with them at any point, but it was all we could end up with at the time. But if I was going ahead now, I would go for something in the adventure boot line. There's lots of good ones out there. I, I am a CD fan, I will say that. Uh, they may have a wonderful adventure Gore-Tex boot, which is great boot. I would definitely go for that. Any protection? Yes, absolutely. You got to have it. Um, I, I know a guy who... A friend of a friend recently, just like last week, was out for a ride with my friend and the guy crashed, broke his leg in three places, and he was wearing work boots. Just and all the all the brakes were right close to the ankle. If he'd had on good boots, he wouldn't have broken his leg. So that was kind of another reminder of, yeah, you know, you want to make sure you got that little extra bit of height and that little extra bit of protection. It's, it's mm. just too easy for it all to go wrong. I, I really but, battle with this because I've met so many people that have broken their legs when they've been wearing taller boots and where have they broken them? Right at the top of where the boot is. Yep. Well, I'll give you a little bit of very interesting history, which may or may not be of interest to other people, but it is to me. Ski boots. Everybody remembers ski boots. Well, ski boots a long time ago were basically work boots. And then they figured out that they needed to make them a little stiffer and stronger, and they got bigger, and then they got with plastic. And people were breaking their legs just above the boot, so they made the boots longer. And they broke above the leg, broke above the boot. They made them longer still, and they broke above the boot. So the boot is always going to be the strong point. You're always going to break it above the boot, no matter how high it is. 
mm-hmm. until you get up to the knee, and then you're going to break the knee, and that's even worse. Don't ask me about boot, about knees. Um, that's a real problem. So you're always going to have that issue. Um, you'll notice hiking boots, ski boots now are much shorter again. They didn't stay long. So I, I don't know if that's use. I'll add something to that. I, not that it, I mean, just one person's perspective. I know a lot of motorcyclists have um, had wrecks where they've had broken tib fibs, the lower leg bones, and that's a pretty common motorcycling injury. It's what I had happen in Canada, but I was wearing some ADV boots, tall boots, and I had a tib fib fracture, but mine was spiral break. So I actually broke the top of one bone, the bottom of the other, and it was because of the way that I fell. The bike fell to the left and caught my leg. And my body twisted the other way. And I was actually told that because I was wearing the adventure boot, it was not a compound fracture. So it was all contained. It never broke the skin. I, I'm not to be graphic, but it was much less traumatic um, and less damage to the tissue and all of that to my leg because I was wearing a reinforced boot and a taller boot. So um, I, I'm just saying for my side of it, I was very happy that I was. And it kept that leg kind of contained and protected as much as it could be. But Michelle, do you think you would have sustained that injury that bad if you had not been in Canada? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I I can tell you of all the countries that I was in, Canada was the dreamiest place to have a motorcycle wreck. I can just say (laughs) excellent health care and the kindest people imaginable in Newfoundland. So I'm going to call that good luck, not bad. (laughs) Good. I dare it. I couldn't resist. Very cool, Michelle. Very cool. All right. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to follow up on something that Sam mentioned because I find it really interesting. And I think it's also very practical um, because after, you know, especially if you're doing long distance travel in the same pair of boots, because odds are you're going to be doing that. I've found, um, I had a pair of tennis shoes that wore out while I was traveling and I had to find replacements in a country in Latin America. And I wear like a women's size eight and a half or nine. And it was very challenging to find shoes of that size for women and women's styles in a country where women commonly have smaller feet. So I I had to make do with the shoes that I had as my point and make them last longer. But I think very realistically, and as a woman, you know, people often don't talk about foot odor and foot hygiene and all of that. But it's very common for women too to have potentially some smelly feet issues pop up, especially when you're wearing those same pair of boots day in, day out. Desert climates, humid climates, uh, riding, breaking a sweat, working, all of that. And Sam makes a very good point of spending a little time out of those boots. One of the things that we've talked about before is some of the uses for desiccant packs. And I use them for electronics. But you can also put them in your boots, um, especially when you're storing them. And I uh, was traveling, I think I was in Ushuaia and staying with a Swiss couple. And the gal of the couple had had a medical background. And I, TMI, but I'm just going to say it, I had a smelly foot issue going on, which I had never in my life ever had. But it's the dangers of the road. You, you get all sorts of weird bacteria and funky issues going on. So anyway... She said she'd had the same thing and she gave me the best tip and I just really appreciated it. She took alcohol wet wipes um, like that you would use to clean the skin, like if you're going to give an injection or something like that, or even just a bottle of isopropyl alcohol with some cotton swabs or something. And she said that twice a day for 10 days, if you just washed or wiped your feet down with an alcohol solution, just, just alcohol, 
Um, so not diluted. If you get under the toenails, between the toes, rub the tissue really, really cleanly, and then just wear open shoes for about 10 days, the bacteria that's causing that uh, odor issue will be killed. And switch out your socks and make sure you air out your boots. And if you've had a hard time drying them, stuff them with newspapers, put a dryer down them, really air them out so you get rid of that moisture issue. But 10 days of twice daily treatments of alcohol wipes will get rid of the bacteria and clean that up. Mm, that is such a, nice. a top tip. Here's a, here's a little fact that I was reading the other day. Um, each foot has 250,000 sweat glands. Wow. Producing 300 to 400 milliliters of sweat per day. So if you think wow. about those in motorcycle boots, in moist mm. in, hot environments, of course, it's a perfect thriving place for fungi to, to be mm. growing. So having sweaty feet just means, um, you know, just a, a much higher chance of, of moistness. And that means that you're much more susceptible to foot rot as well as uh, whiffy feet. I mean, you can affect, you can... Uh, really slow down what happens by changing your socks regularly and mm -hmm. by not using cotton socks, by using synthetic or merino wool um, because they don't act like sponges and they dry much faster overnight. And um, a little plug for uh, one of um, Venture Rider Radio's sponsors here, Pearly's Possum Socks. I've got a pair, um, couple of pairs of them and they are absolutely brilliant. 45% soft merino wool and 40% possum fur. And when I saw possum fur, I thought, What? But this combination is incredibly soft. And yeah, um, you, you just never have the sensation of sweaty feet. But if you do end up with, you know, getting um, foot rot, and it does happen, one of the other things that you can do if you can't get alcohol wipes is just go to the supermarket and get some bottles of vinegar and soak your feet every day for 10 days in vinegar. Just straight um, vinegar? Just well, you can mix it with water. It's just got to be a fairly high concentrate of vinegar, mm -hmm. um, and you can get rid of it um, um, just like that. So, yeah, wow. it's interesting the, to realize that you can't get rid of it just by washing your feet thoroughly. No, you know, no, that's, you can't. that's good to know. Yeah. And you know, when you're on a big trip, you're just living in your boots, aren't you? All day, yeah. every day, except for those respirate days that we were talking about. Um, so, yeah. This, it, why on earth get feet that are falling to pieces because you haven't washed your feet and, and looked after your feet and your boots properly? It's just brewing trouble. Well, the military will tell you about that. That's the number one thing they teach you in, in the military is look after your feet because if your feet aren't working, you're not walking. Yeah. And that's, that's super critical. Well, let's um, let's move on with uh, from the boots and and just talk about helmets briefly. I want to just sort of go around and see what people are wearing. Is as, as far as not so much brand. I don't care about the brand. You can certainly talk about that. But I'm I'm curious about. Um, I guess the the big difference really is. And correct me if I'm wrong here. The 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 two big decisions are either or the one decision is either a flip up or not. I guess um, that would yes. be a decision on on traveling. Grant, go ahead. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Absolutely, no doubt yeah. about it. Not enough uh, yesterday, Yeah. Uh, anytime you stop and you want to ask directions or you want to just get gas quick or um, a police pulls you over, flip your helmet up. There's a face. You're a human being. You can talk to them. It's way better than trying to yell through a blocked up full coverage helmet that you can't flip up. And I wear glasses as well. Putting, taking a full face helmet off with glasses is a giant pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. and I've, I've got a dual sport helmet, a bell for my off-road riding. 
I hate it. I'm probably going to go back to my shoe burst tour tech helmet because it's just because it's a flip up and it's so much less aggravation. Massive difference. And the other thing that I insist on is a, a sun visor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sun visor makes a difference. That's the sun visor that's the internal? The, the internal, yeah, the, the dark gray thing, yeah. whatever. Um, a peak is nice. Retractable, Grant. Retractable. You. Absolutely. Retractable. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Terrific. When, um, th- I mean, that's that's such a useful thing, isn't it? And uh, you don't have to wear sunglasses. And just going back to what you were saying then, Grant, when, if you do get stopped or you want to ask directions, for example, for people to be able to see um, your eyes through your glasses and not be standing looking at shades, yep. that makes all the difference too. So, yeah, no, nice nice bit of kit. One thing we, um, I've noticed with the various ones that I've had is that they tend to be softer plastic. So um, when you're cleaning them, you've got to be a lot more careful than you have to be when you clean a visor. Well, I've got a flip up. Um, it's now five years old and I've ridden it a lot. Um, it's been my only helmet until last year. The I've got the pin lock in front of me here. It's still perfect. And the outer shield is still the original. And it's fine. And it's been off-road and mud and stuff thrown on it. I'm amazed at how tough it is. I remember the, replacing but, shields like monthly years ago. But the sun visor yeah. inside is um, softer plastic. so um, Yeah, but just treat it with tender, loving care. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Very, very gently. Yep. 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 The other thing is yep. a peak. Um, I, I use a peak on mine and I'm kind of 50-50 on it for street use. And for a passenger, no peak. Don't ask me how I know. (laughs) Not a good thing for a passenger. Yes. And Susan hated it. She said every time she turned, she would hit my back and it knocked her head. She just just hated it. So she runs without the uh, flip up or without the uh, peak, I should say. But yeah, um, the other one, if you're going to Norway, you definitely want to flip up sun visor, not sunglasses, because if you're like me, you wear, well, I'm, I have to wear prescription sunglasses. And I remember my first tunnel in Norway, mm-hmm. going from really <laughs> bright sunshine to absolute pitch black. And so many of those tunnels don't have any lights in at all. Yep, and they're so none. long, there's no daylight from the other end. Yeah, yep. it's terrible. So I ended up pulling them down onto my nose and peering over the top. And of course, I'm supposed to be wearing glasses in order to see where I'm going. And it's dark. It's dripping from the ceiling. And ah, no, flip up sun visor. Thank you very much. Just talk your peaks. I don't tend to ride with a a, a peaked um, helmet because we tend to travel with quite a small tent. And one of the things that I tend to do with my helmet is when we're inside a tent, I face the visor towards the tent dinner so it doesn't get scratched, you know, with your moving kit in and out and so on. And um, the peak just gets in the way. Wow. That's the first time I've heard someone say they chose a helmet configuration because of the way they put it in their tent. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Not the reason I chose it. Come on. <laughs> but it's but a fact. Part, but part, exactly. Thank you, Greg. Added it's bonus to it. Okay. I guess. Yeah. Right. I'll give but you I that. do like a chin piece. I do like a chin piece. And so this is where oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's great. I like the protection of it from the uh, from the environment but i also like to be able to lock my helmet to my handlebars or lock them to, to the bed if i'm staying in a dodgy hotel or something mm-hmm. um, so that chin piece yeah multiple yeah yeah i i don't even know how to talk about open face helmets they're just like no no too dangerous too dangerous oh. No good. Oh, no, thank you. And a buddy of mine wears where, an open face helmet. He won't ride anything else. No matter what, he just says, I wear an open face helmet. They make me call it those full face things, make me claustrophobic. Forget it. I'm not doing it. 
Okay. Well, it's, it, it's all it's choices choice. and, and compromises. Yeah. Again, what Shirley said, compromises. And, and some of this you're going to have to make for yourself. You know, what, what makes Absolutely. you comfortable? I, I mean, I know that is one argument. I remember this, having this conversation with David Hoff, and, and one of David's points was that you, you have to be comfortable. If you're not comfortable, then that, then that makes you worn out, tired, aggravated. And that certainly yeah. puts you at risk. That is a danger yep. in itself. So, you know, if, if somebody really has a, has something that they need to have or need they, some configuration they need, it, I guess you, you just got to say, well, it's yours. Yep. I mean, that's, that's one of the things about motorcycling, isn't it? We're all individuals. We've all got our own dreams and desires and abilities and lack of ability and so on. Um, so, there's, there's something for all of us. And that's one of the things that I just love about um, being a motorcyclist is that we can all be ourselves. Yeah. yeah. As long as you understand, accept the risks, then, then yep. you know, you do yeah. what you want to do. There's your choices. But yeah. I was going to say, go to an event and try and find two identical motorcycles. Nope. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. customized them and modified them to some extent. They're always individualized, personalized to work for that person. I'm going to put a plugging for my helmet. Uh, Shark Evos. I've had three now. I've always had flip-top helmets because uh, I, I agree with everything you say, Grant. They're great. Um, but the Shark Evos are great because the chin piece goes over the back. Um, even in towns, you don't get that uh, wind buffeting from the the, um, the chin piece sitting up high if you if you um, tra- trickling along a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a great advocate for Shark Evos. Love them. Um, Michelle, we didn't hear from you on this. Yeah. Um, well, I've got different helmets that I use depending on the different riding that I'm doing. And I, I, I'm just a believer in full face helmets. I agree with everything that you guys have said here. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I come from Sturgis and live in a state in the United States where helmets are not required. So a lot of people here ride without helmets or they wear the little half helmets. And um, I just those now I'm so far beyond that I've done it before but now I I just cringe at the thought of of not having a full faced helmet on anytime I'm riding um, I ride with an ADV helmet that has a peak and every time I go to Patagonia I remember how challenging riding with a peak can be in high wind mm-hmm. um, because it really kind of does a lot of buffeting and rattling of your neck and all of that it's a little bit annoying but it does help in, you know, keeping some sun out of my face. Um, I, I make sure that whatever helmet I have, if I can, I want a pinlock system in it. If I'm going to be riding where there's humidity, um, I like adaptability with good vents. I, for some reason, I'm a person, maybe it's a claustrophobic issue as well, but I really like some fresh air. There are times that um, I, I have, um, I guess, a, a showy hornet, not that it makes any difference, but I'll actually pop that little clear visor up a bit just to get some more air moving through my helmet. And I have most of my vents open all year round um, just because I like fresh air flowing across my face and it just keeps me a little more, I feel more alert and awake. Um, I have an open, uh, like a dirt bike, an open face helmet that I wear with goggles in really hot weather. So I get more fresh air on my face when I'm riding that way. Um, yeah, I, I, I have been pretty happy with the helmets that I've had. I don't have a modular helmet. That's probably um, a next level for me to to look at. But my concern has always been just really that it's uh, safety rated, that it's comfortable, um, and that it's got good ventilation and and uh, the features that work for wherever I'm going. Mm. Yeah. 
I, I'm the same with the, the fresh air. I like to have my visor cracked open a bit. And it's something to check if you're buying a helmet is to make sure that the visor can be held open a tiny bit. I've found yep. some that don't have the detents there that so you, you can't yep. open it a tiny bit. Either got to open it a third or something or nothing at all. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. it's got to have that crack for sure. Yeah. I wear my, I ride mine cracked open virtually all the time. Yeah, yep. me too. And, unless, it's, unless it's hitting down with rain, then I'm, I'm doing the same right. thing. Yeah, yeah, and I remember there was a, a test a while ago, and I don't remember the details, so it's very vague, but there was testing on the amount of CO2 inside a fully closed helmet, and it wasn't, it wasn't good. Oh, really? Wow. Not, not good, yeah. So that little crack open, you, you said, Michelle, that you feel more alert? Yep, you yeah. probably are more alert. Wow. That, that's the same thing I get. Same feeling I get as what Michelle described. Exactly. So she said it. I was nodding away. Yep. And I, I've tried a modular helmet, but I don't, I don't use it now. I have a full face a dual sport style helmet. The modular helmet I found was just too big and I'm sure it was the model is HJC and it just, it was huge. I mean, I had to watch bridge overpasses. This thing was, <laughs> it was just massive and, and uh, so it didn't feel very good. I, I use um, a Sherry Neotech and I really like it for the reasons that you guys have been ticking. I can get a, um, a, a little bit of a slit. There's a sun visor which attracts. Um, I like the fact that it's got a removable lining so I can wash it on a big trip. I like the fact that it's got different jaw pads so you can pop them in and pop them out, find the one that suits you the best so that you get that really nice snug fit around the jaw. I mean, we've all got different jaw shapes, so it's mm. just a, a great bit of design. Um, I always choose a white one because um, it's much better for heat reflection. What a difference to darker helmets. Absolutely phenomenal difference. But also it's a visibility thing. Um, here's a question. Is um, um, a more expensive modular helmet better vented than a less expensive helmet? And another vented? question. To, yeah, vented. Mm, Are there more yeah. vents in a more expensive one or less? Not necessarily. Little, I can talk to that. Okay, go ahead. I've got a, a, the TourTech modular, which is pretty well ventilated. Um, I can open and close the vents, and I'd say it's, it's a very good helmet. I'm very, very happy with it. I've also got a uh, Bell, uh, the Bell Adventure helmet. I can never remember the model name, but anyway, it's a Bell Adventure helmet, which is also very good. And I would say it's got less ventilation, but the big flaw, I can't close the vents. So if I get up at some altitude in this part of the country, you get up to some altitude, it gets cold, and there's may quite possibly snow up there. I want to close the vents. I can't. Mm. And that's the big flaw. But it's, well, less than half the price of the Touratech helmet. Have you had that out in the pouring rain before? Once, briefly, and yep, water like, gets inside. Yeah, it runs down the side of the... That's, I had one for a very short time. I didn't yeah. like it at all. Just just for that reason, yeah. I liked it otherwise because it's got the the MIPS system in there as well. The, yes, the rotational which is, system, which is great. You know, that's, yep, that, I'm a big fan of that. That's why I bought the helmet. In fact, mm -hmm. um, that was kind of the final decider. But the, for me, the the water thing coming down the inside of the visor was just too much. Yeah, well, I've got two helmets that I can switch back and forth depending on what I'm what my planned ride is. If I'm doing a, a big ride up country, um, like long halfway up BC or something like that, and I'm going to be gone for a week, I'll wear the Touratech, which will do everything quite well. If I'm going for a day ride or just a couple of days, I'll wear the Bell because it's cheaper. And if I crash it and smash it and bash it, I don't worry too much about it. Um, it's cheaper to replace, and it's got the MIPS, so probably. Probably, possibly, for safety, it's possibly better. Not sure. Nobody's 
got any proof on it. Um, and it's well ventilated, so I'm going to be as cool as possible. So it, it's a it's a trade off. We did an episode on helmet testing, and and anyway, the, the what we found with this was that the money you're paying for the helmet really doesn't have it's not directly correlated to safety. So you can get some cheaper helmets that will perform better in the testing that they do for helmets. So the money doesn't, um, spending more money doesn't get you more protection for a helmet. And the reason I just mentioned this, because I, I can remember a dealership and getting, walking in and looking for a helmet when I said, well, you know, which, which helmet should I look at? How much money should I, do? Well, I need to spend? He goes, well, how valuable is your head? <laughs> you know, and it was, and I heard that a number of times since then. And I just think that's a little misleading. You know, really what you want to look at is you want to look at the testing procedures that they put these helmets through mm-hmm. third party and see those results and how those helmets held up in a crash because it doesn't have anything to do with the value of the helmet. You're paying for extras like vents and better visors, definitely better visors, things like that, waterproofing, whatever the case is. So something yeah. to keep in mind. I wanted to throw in a little comment, a little add, add on to that. There's a lot of opinion going on as to which is the better safety standard. There's ECE, the European standard, there's the Sharp system, there's Snell and DOT, and which one is the most correct for the type of riding you're doing? If you're racing, Snell might be better, but then MotoGP says no, and they're coming out with their own standard, and ECE is considered to be better for the average rider doing average stuff instead of high speed, and then TOT says, oh, but this is wonderful, and that's nonsense, but anyway. um, So a lot of it depends on what you think is the better standard. I'm personally a fan of the ECE or the uh, Australian standard at the moment, but that's a personal opinion, as I said. So you have to decide what it is you want. But one of the big things that you are getting with a better helmet is that it's probably, not des- definitely not necessary, but probably better engineered, and it's probably better fitting, but not necessarily, and it's certainly more luxurious on the interior. And I know which one I want to wear, luxury or hardcore. I mean, my bell is not nearly as nice to wear as my Touratech. I put the Touratech on, and oh yes, this is a nice helmet. Whereas the bell, yeah, it works, it fits, it's not bad, but it's not luxurious. So yeah, and you that's pay what you're your paying for. Choice. That's what you're paying sure. for, really. When you're saying engineered, that's the part of it that'll be engineered. But some of the other stuff is a bit of a hit and miss, I think, with them. It seems that definitely, you know, some of these they come out with you think that would be a great helmet because it's expensive and a brand name, and then you see it in the testing. And it doesn't do well at all. So it's probably good to look at all the testing and just, you know, just if you can find the same one tested everywhere, have a look and just see what the results are. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. A lot of it is you pay your money, you take your chances. Um, If it's got an ECE standard, I think it's it's fine. I won't buy a helmet that doesn't have that unless I was in Australia, in which case I would buy Sharp. Mm-hmm. So, but, well, and Sharp does helmets that that they're sold around the world, so you can look at what they've tested yeah. and and see if they if it's sold where you are. The other thing to mention is just because it's a DOT sticker on it or anything doesn't mean that it's a real helmet. You have to be really careful buying <laughs> yeah. super cheap helmets online. There's some oh. horrible stories out there of things that have happened from people buying helmets that are supposedly DOT approved because it has a sticker on it or has a whatever on it. Um, I, I'm like myself, I think you should be going to a dealership and, and somewhere where you can Absolutely. walk in, try the helmet on and deal with somebody who will be there if you have trouble. Well, the important thing is that, that it doesn't fit. Exactly. I mean, I've got an Arai head or a Shoei head or a Shoeberth head 
uh, kind of a bell head, but I don't have an HJC head. I don't have an arrow head. I don't have an AGV head. They don't fit me worth a darn. So what kind of head have you got? What's your shape? <laughs> it's so true because Sam mentioned earlier jaw, but for me, it's cheekbones. Mm-hmm. So how my cheekbones fit in a helmet arise, just really push at my temples and my cheekbones and give me a really bad headache. But me they too. do need to fit. They do need to be snug. They, I mean, that's such a good point, Grant, that they really yeah. need to fit. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we found with Susan, she's got horns. Believe it or not, I mean seriously, she's got horns. <laughs> right where is you she expect be, horns to be. Is she, she going to be speaking to you? Uh, <laughs> is she, she going to listen to she this? She can't hear me. She can't hear me, and she knows. We've talked about it. We've laughed about it many times. Every helmet she's ever had, I've had to carve the styrofoam just a little bit. You know, like not even an eighth of an inch, millimeter maybe, just that little bit to take the pressure off those two points. Well, then and maybe then that's my fine. problem too. Because if I'm getting headaches at my temples, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, well, really think about it when you put it on and kind of push on the helmet to figure out where is the sore spot. And when you take it off, look on your head and see if you can see a red spot. Mm-hmm. And maybe just a little bit of pressure, just like you could actually wash the styrofoam just a little bit or, if necessary, carve it out just a little bit. And Susan goes from, I can't wear this for more than 10 minutes to all day and no problem. Mm-hmm. Just remember, if you're modifying your helmet, you're doing it at your own risk. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I'll just leave that there. Hey, uh, just, just, just before you go on, I've, um, I've been just looking at the motocap.com.au site and uh, the crash-rated helmets for all these, hundreds of them, where they've actually rated them for say, uh, for protection and comfort, basically. Mm-hmm. But I, I think comfort, as you were talking about, comfort is a, is a personal thing. You know, Some helmets just don't fit you. Yep. you know, and you'd be surprised, like Schubert is not one of the top-rated um, protection helmets on this. Really? So, mm-hmm. yep. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe. And, and, but, it's, sorry, Brian, uh, that, that, I just let me interject there that it varies model to model. It's not necessarily by brand. Of course. Yeah. 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 It's, it's model to model and different models of different helmets are, are all there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, uh, for people to have a look at. Just quickly to wrap things up here, I just wanted to find out if anyone has tricks for living with a helmet on the road. Same sort of thing we were talking about the boots, where Michelle brought up some excellent points about foot maintenance. What about helmets? Are there any particular rituals, routines, things that you found that are problematic and ways to solve them? Uh, take the liners out and wash them. Yep. Um, they, they all clip out. Um and sometimes if it's really hot and sticky, I'll wear a um, uh, like a bandana over my head, uh, which protects it a little uh, from, you know, just protects your helmet from the sweat. But you should wash your helmets out, clean them out. Or uh, if you can't do that, just leave them in the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, wa- I actually put mine in the tub once in a while, every once in a while. Just give it the whole thing a thorough wash. Uh, it's amazing how dirty the tub is afterwards, even though you've been washing the interior by hand separately. Yeah. It's yeah. also worth dis- dismantling um, the visor mechanism, uh, especially yes. if you've been doing lots of sand and dust. And just just yeah, do it. rinse it out in, in running water. And yeah. then at a late stage, if you get a chance to, give it a, a zap with some silicon spray. Um, and that makes a massive difference to the longevity of a, a helmet life. For sure. And if you get the chance to cleaning out those vents, sometimes a bug will go right into a vent. You'd be amazed how often that happens. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. (laughs) So just a little bit of maybe compressed air or something like that. Not too much pressure. You don't want to do anything to damage that or or, 
uh, hurt the plastic in those vents, but cleaning those out too makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Definitely before you go to Australia, because yeah, <laughs> you've heard the Brian stories. Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine getting to Australia and they look at your helmet and they say, there's a bug in here and toss it and you can't have it. Uh, well, you, you pick up seeds yeah. and all sorts of things too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Shirley, Shirley and I got hers confiscated in Darwin. You know, it had uh, Cambodian dust on mm-hmm. the outside of it. You know? Wow. There you go. Did they just look at it and say, that's Cambodian dust? <laughs> it's not Australian dust. It was pretty obvious. It was very red. <laughs> well, I, I, is that it? Is it? Does anyone have anything else? I think we've covered helmets pretty well. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? Tires, um, helmets, and boots. That's just so important to get those things right when you're on a really big trip where you're just going to be living um, every day for month after month on your bike. Um, those three things make such a difference in the quality of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, and that reminds me, uh, make sure you've used all that stuff for at least a month, a couple of thousand miles at least before you head off. Don't go off with brand new stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Sam had That's mentioned um, about the fibers You'd plug pearly socks there, and and that's great. I was just going to say that the difference between synthetic and a natural fiber like merino wool or this this blend of merino wool and possum fur is that um, it's all about trapping air, right? And we know insulation is all about air getting trapped in there. The thing is with the with a natural fiber like wool, for instance, wool will absorb moisture into the fiber itself and still leave the space for air where synthetic mm-hmm. doesn't have that ability. That's really the, the big difference between those two, not to mention the natural lanolins that are in the natural fibers that reduce or, or uh, help uh, stop mold from growing or, or, or nasty things that we don't want to grow in there. But when those fibers absorb that moisture and leave that air in, that means that they still will hold heat. They will still be, um, they will still be soft. So there's a big difference between synthetic and natural fibers for that. Great point. And I guess with that, I, I think we're done. I think we're going to have to wrap it up here, you guys. Oh, I know. We're... <laughs> yeah, <but go> for... <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Great fun as yeah. always. I mean, seriously, I could sit here for another hour. I'm sure no problem at all. But um, yeah, easily. We'll, we'll call it a day. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, no plugs this time. Oh, shit. <laughs> you can't delete that. Out, you know. Okay. Well. Um, <laughs> that was an oops moment. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go into plugs. And Brian, what have, what have you got for a plug? Uh, look, one of the big plugs for this year, and I think everyone should get on board, is the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride on the 21st of May, 2023, uh, worldwide. May 21st. And we all know what it's about, you know, um, those, that terrible disease cancer hits people in all sorts of areas, and men don't look after their health too well. And I think this was a great initiative um, brought up by a guy in Queensland, I think, um, and it's it's worldwide. Triumph have got on board. Um, it's a wonderful thing, um, and I think they've raised, from memory, I think about thirteen point eight million US dollars over its time. But wow. to me, it's very important. It doesn't take much. Um, boys and girls, dress up, get your bikes out, go for a ride, have a bit of fun, and raise a bit of money for um, cancer research. 
Perfect. Do you have a website yeah. for that, Brian? Yeah, yeah, there is a website. It's called gentlemansride.com. Okay, good. Well, we'll put that link that. in the show notes. That's perfect. Thank you very much, Brian. May 21st, 2023. Okay. Well, can, I, can I just make a comment on that? Yep. One, I, I went on one in the States, and one of the things that fascinated me about it was um, not only were people dressed up in distinguished gentlemen outfits and distinguished ladies, um, but the bikes that people were pulling out to ride on this, some real classic bikes, some beauties that probably don't see the light of air of, of day very often. So it was it was a real gem to see um, everybody out dressed up and smiling and doing a good yeah. cause and the bikes they were riding. It's it's a buzz. I imagine that's what's so difficult for Brian is is actually figuring out which bike to take. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, one of, well, Sheila will tell you the story about the, one of the first DGRs I went on. I dressed up in my dinner suit. Right? He looked a treat. Until the phone call came, can you um, get the trailer and come down and pick me up? <laughs> and I said, well, we do we do have total care on ACV. Why don't you ring them? Good plan. So he rang them and the guy said, I'll be a little wild. You're about the fourth old bike I'm picking up. <laughs> <laughs> they, they made the ride but didn't make, make the ride home after the ride. But he said he'd actually picked one up that didn't make it to the start of the ride. <laughs> so one thing that the DTR does is they're all short rides. Yeah. You, you won't be doing 250Ks with your um, dinner suit and your moustache waxed. And <laughs> it, it's just, I can only reiterate what Brian said. It's such an important cause and uh, and what a fun way to, to raise a bit of money. Absolutely. Yeah. And I should add that you don't have to be all dressed up on an old bike either. You can go... Run with the brown. Doesn't matter. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. no, no. no but it's, it's a great spectacle. I'm, I'm in the process of registering a ride for our little area, and, and uh, they talk about that. Don't make the ride too big because of the old bikes. I the old it. boys or the it. old bikes? Old bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the good thing about Brian is though, if he has a breakdown, he just runs back and grabs another one. I mean, it's no big deal. Don't know about the running back part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just got this image of a man running helter-skelter down an Australian back road wearing a dinner suit. Yeah. <laughs> Shirley, have you got a plug? No, just reiterating Brian's, Jim. Okay, good. Good on you. Sam, what have you got? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about um, my USA tour because it's come together really well now. I'm, I'm so pleased. Um the first event that I'm going to be at is the BMW Motorcyclist of America. So that's MOA, their 50th national rally. And it's um, between the 8th and 10th of June in Doswell, which is near uh, Richmond, Virginia. And I'm going to be presenting an and book signing there. And one of the reasons that I'm smiling so largely about this is because it's also the 100 years of BMW celebration. So mm, um, I suspect that the national is just going to be a, a full on buzz. And I'm seeing um, the websites and so on, um, the information coming together on this. And I'm just thinking, wow, um, the bands they've got, the presenters they've got, the companies that are turning up, um, exhibitors and so on. Um, yeah, it's going to be very busy. So that's my first, um, 8th to 10th of June in Virginia. And then I'm scooting straight on up to Motorcycles of Detroit um, for Saturday, June the 17th. 
And uh, that's going to be a presentation um, evening and book signing. And this is my second time with the guys there. I was there with them last year. What a great fun of people, bunch of people. Had a really good audience and um, quite a few laughs. One of the things that was fun about that for me was that we had a bunch of people who even um, rode or drove down from Canada uh, to join us. Mm, nice. So that was, uh, that was good. Um, then I am meandering because I've given myself a few days of, of riding, um, riding and stopping and seeing over to Chicago. And I'm linking up there with the Chicago Regional BMW Motorcycles Asso- uh, Motorcycle Owners Association on June the 22nd. That's a Thursday. And um, I've had quite a lot to do with these guys over the last year or so. And what a, what a real bunch of enthusiasts. So it's going to be um, good fun to actually meet some of these guys face to face. From there, this is one of my my scurry sections. I'm heading straight up to Moon Motorsports in Monticello, Minnesota. And that um, event's happening on Saturday, June the 24th. This is my first uh, first time in this part of the state. So um, I haven't been to Minnesota before or South Dakota or this chunk of of the United States. So um, I'm really looking forward to slotting in some miles of exploring. Mm. Then um, I've got two events that might happen i'm just waiting to to hear what's on those so the next one i do know is happening is at kissel motorsports um and that is port matilda in pennsylvania the 27th to the 30th of july and i know that quite a few adventure rider radio listen listeners are going to be there um it's the seventh year of the event and it's got a fabulous reputation but they sold out within a couple of weeks so um, yeah absolutely um it's, um, but there is a wait list. So if you um, have a look at the website and you think, cool, that's right up my street. I would love to go to that. Then get yourself on that wait list. You might be lucky. What, what's the website? It, just look for Kissel Motorsports, Soggy Bottom Moto Fest. Okay, Kissel with a K. K-I-S-S-E-L-L. Right. Motorsports. And they're in um, Pennsylvania. Um, and the last presentation I'm going to be doing is at Morton's BMW in Fredericksburg in Virginia. That's on Saturday, the 5th of August. This is my third time back with the team there, and it's always good fun. Um, they're a really buzzy lot. Do you know, I spend a lot of time smiling when I'm out um, and about on these tours. To, um, yeah, it's not only the riding and the, the, the scenery that I'm seeing, but um, it's people that I'm meeting at the presentations. It's a, it's a real buzz. So, Sam, when you're doing these presentations, do you have books with you that people can get from you or, or mm. you do Yes, that? I do. Oh. I do. Um, I, sit, I ship some ahead and then um, I'm carrying some on the bike as well. It's one of the reasons that I tend to look a little bit um, lumpier loaded than I really ought to be. <laughs> but um, I carry pop-up banner presentation, um, you know, uh, things and um, T-shirts and some books and um, that sort of thing as oh, well. Oh, that's pretty so, um um, not many changes of underwear. There's no room for those. Oh, no. That's just the minor <laughs> stuff, right? I mean, so exactly. I'm curious, Sam, you know, because we're, what we're talking about with the, the polishing brushes and things for the shoes, when you take books like that to a presentation, do you tear those books in half to save weight or what do you do with that? And I rip all the covers off. Oh, um, the covers. I, I, I rip the color photos sense. out of the middle because those are the heaviest pages. There you go. So Sam's, Sam's weight reduction. So if you're going to see him and you get a book, expect no cover. <laughs> and it'll be much lighter. <laughs> But there will be a signature inside and a dedication. All you got to do is say. Well, you know what? I think I'd like the one with no cover. I think that's a good, that's a good marketing idea for you <laughs> to reduce weight, <laughs> no covers. <laughs> the ultimate ADV rider, um, assistant aid. Right. 
And of course, all this information is available at sam-manicom.com that you can go there and see your full, your full schedule, correct? Correct. It's on the homepage of the website. Perfect. And of course, on um, Facebook. Okay, great. Uh, Grant, what have you got? Well, we have events, all kinds of them. Coming up next is Virginia in two weeks, April 27 to 30. And of course, Germany in May, uh, Can West in July. Susan and I will be at that one. Newfoundland in August, Switzerland in August, Romania in August. Boy, you're going to have to go do a lap around Europe. That sounds good. And then into France for September and Austria, a brand new event, September 21 to 24 for Austria this year. And Germany, autumn, they, Germany does two events, which is really something. And then into South Africa for their annual event in November. So a pretty good slate of events this year. There's lots happening everywhere. And we hope you can get to one of them somewhere near you and get some inspiration and information to get you out on the road and connecting with other people and get out there and travel. Horizonsunlimited.com forward slash events. And he knows it. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, what have you you got for a plug? Okay, so just a a couple of dates on the calendar for this year for women riders. May 6th is um, the 17th annual International Female Ride Day, which is uh, just a way, a reminder for women that are motorcyclists to connect with other women and get out and ride. And it's really just a, a day to to um, foster women in motorsports. And then coming up later in May, on the third Sunday in May, which is the 21st this year, is the Women's International Motorcycle Association, WEMA Day. Um, and there are events in different countries around the world that are uh, put together for our chapters of WEMA. Um, the WEMA USA um, team is is putting together a virtual ride this year instead of an in-person ride. But WEMA Italy, WEMA Great Britain, different countries are doing live events that third Sunday in May to get together and celebrate women in riding and connect women riders with other women riders so they can make new riding friends and get out on the road together. Very good. Now, do you have websites for those two events? I I do. Um, so, uh, the first one, International Female Ride Day, is motorrests dot com, and it was put together by Vicky Gray. She's the founder of the event. Um, and then the WEMA events are going to be listed, um, or you can find information about different country chapters at WEMAWorld dot com. That's W I M A World dot com. Okay. Perfect. So it's the same date as the distinguished ride. Uh, the 21st of May. Yeah. 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 Okay. Perfect. All right. Did I miss anybody? Have I missed anything else? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wrap it up here and say thank you very much, everyone. That was fantastic. Thanks, guys. Thank very you. much. Been fun. Yeah, no, it's been Thanks, everyone. But I'd like, thank I'd you. Like, I'd, like Mich- I'd like Michelle to do a little bit of homework. What does T clock stand for? T clock stand for Michelle? Can you oh, find out? I will. I, I remember. So tires. C is uh, controls and levers. L is lights and electrics. O is oil. I can't remember the rest though. I'll find out what T clock <laughs> means. So yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry Till next <laughs> month. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you, guys. Bye bye. Bye bye. 
Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here, adventureriderradio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.